Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 117 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined as always by Matt Feuerstein, the co-host of the show. Matt, um, I was trying to think of something to say to you before the show. Sometimes there's like obvious things to talk about, but the thing I was thinking about lately, which is um, when we first started doing the podcast, I would check listeners fairly often because, you know, your podcast at that point is like a nice new toy. You're like, ooh, is it growing? Is it this many? Who knows? I haven't checked in a long time. For some reason, I checked like one of those unreliable, like chartable.com sites the other day for like, where do we rank on the Apple podcasts? What I learned is that we, um, like, we went from like 83 to like 64 to like 198 or something crazy. Like, like it can't be real because this, this is also weeks after we posted a new episode. But one thing, the one day I checked, the thing that tickled me is that we were like right above Ryback and Sabu's podcast. So, uh, hmm. we, we, you know, if those guys came up, we're in trouble, but separately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes I think those lists are like just totally made up. I, yeah. I do think though that, um, there was a moment where maybe ROH was more zeitgeisty and like, I think maybe there we did pass a peak of listenership probably a while ago and we're kind of settling into a, uh, a smaller batch of listeners, uh, you know, more loyal group, i.e. you, the current listeners. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, we always said, uh, we're going to listen. I mean, we're going to do this even if really almost no one listened because we just wanted to watch these old DVDs and talk about them. And uh, this podcast was a fun excuse to do it. So the fact that anyone listens, still we find crazy and we appreciate it. Yeah, and uh forgot what I was going to say. I'm just uh, – no, but yeah, we, I've always been happy with our listeners the few times I've checked. But also it's uh, – like we do nothing. Like if we wa- if we were like a podcast that really wanted people to listen, like we, we, I mean, we want people to listen, but like there's so many things we could do that we just don't do. Like we ha- barely promote the show. Yeah, ha- have a we- um, have a website, have a have a X feed dedicated to it, other social media. Um, yeah, like you know, come up with more promotions. Um, you know, try to get advertisers because there's some you know there's some small podcasts out there that have some advertisers so it's not like i don't think that we're too small for that necessarily um you know and um yeah all sorts of stuff to uh try to and also you know come up with a regular release schedule yeah i think it probably would be the biggest one yeah no this is uh this is literally just for fun and we appreciate anyone who listens very 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 much we're we're a show that um you know we we cover a, a decade and a half old like episodes of a independent of an influential but small independent wrestling company we do shows like on no set schedule usually every 2 to 3 weeks you know we've turned down like an offer to be on like a fairly big wrestling network we turned down like an interview that definitely would have got us like lots of listeners for at least an episode like you know we are it's we are the perfect podcast it's the perfect podcast for two people that don't like a lot of pressure because we made sure not to put pressure on ourselves to live up to any expectations at all and and and, yeah and people that's gonna continue yeah it's funny (laughs) whenever like on the rare occasion where i do mention this to anybody that i know in my life that you know didn't already know that this was a hobby of mine um you know and i say like i that's how i describe it like oh well i record a podcast about 
a small independent professional wrestling company and review their events from 15 years ago and more. And, and they're like, um, Oh, well, that's very specific. And, and it is, it's, it's, it's extremely specific. Yeah. So as, as always, you know, if, if Hey, since we're already talking about the subject, you know, I'll, I'll do the thing I say occasionally, which is, you know, we don't run ads. We don't ask for a patron. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but you know, if you, if you like the show and you think someone else will like it, you can tell them about it. that's awesome. If you want to do a review, if that somehow helps an algorithm somewhere or give a five-star rating, that's great. But really, we're good. We're good. But, but, um, but also, as you know, five stars is not the peak anymore because podcasts keep getting better. So the, so the star ratings keep getting more and more and more. Cause, you know, as time progresses, you know, we advance in the art form of podcasting. So you have to give more stars. That's how all rating systems work. Don't you? That's how it's worked since like 1981, Trevor. What are you talking about? Matt, I'll, yeah, I'll have, I was about to say, I'll have you know, Matt, there was the, it's never been a five star scale on iTunes. If you if you really know your history, in 1982 there was a six star review on Apple iTunes for a podcast, and so you know the scale's always been larger than five. It's just that there was one six star podcast in the early 80s, and then no thing, nothing that even got five and a quarter for. 20 years. That's a very normal way a rating system works. I think think our listenership is niche enough that almost everyone gets our joke, but I I assume that there probably is is at least one person that doesn't. That's the power of being very self-selecting in your your tribe. Hopefully everyone gets that joke. If not, you know what? Your life's probably better that you don't get that joke. Correct. But um, will your life be better or poor after today's episode? You'll have to listen to to find out, because today we are covering Gut Check, which took place August 26, 2006, at the Frontier Fieldhouse in Chicago Ridge, Illinois. Gut, from checks, Gut Check is something that I get at least once a year because I've had digestive issues for a long time. <laughs> so it, it happened – well, this Gut Check happened in front of a report crowd of 800 fans. I hope none of your Gut Checks have been that large of, in front of that large of an audience. But uh, <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> um. When I was looking, doing my research for this episode, uh, I, I saw that Dave Meltzer wrote at the time that this was down from, from recent shows, ROH shows in Chicago. So I decided to like go back through my notes and check. And the last show in Chicago was Chi Town Struggle. It drew 900, so another 100. The two shows in Chicago before that were the two WrestleMania weekend shows. So I feel like you really can't compare those because that's a completely unfair comparison. But those did draw 1,700 and 1,200 fans. And then the shows before that also drew, uh, Vendetta drew 900 fans. So it's like a slight, it's always funny when it's like saying like, Oh, you know, like Dave Meltzer made it out. Oh, this was down and it's a hundred fans. But then you realize like in the realm of indie wrestling promotion, when you're drawing, you know, 500 to like 900 fans, a hundred's actually got pretty big drop. So, yeah. Um, Although, you know, it's interesting though, because yeah, it is, you know, besides it being a somewhat smaller crowd, it feels like a very different crowd. Those Chicago crowds are always like the best crowds ROH had. And this did not have a lot of heater intensity for a lot of the show. They would get up for certain things, but this was nothing like the Chicago crowds where they, they just make them show much more electric with their energy. 
the hundred fans that left were the best fans. And apologies to Dr. Keith because I think he was at the show. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> those were the ones that were making the most noise. Them and Dr. Keith. So yeah, one well, of the that's hot, interesting hot that the that's interesting that the most fair weather fans were the ones that had the most energy. That's you know <laughs> you don't expect that, but I guess you never know. Matt, there may be holes in my my theory. You you you, you are you are exposing them, but um. Something that we some matches that we didn't get to see ha- that happened on the show. Um, Chris Vetter sent in a PW Torch live report as he often did at the time, and he luckily um, kept track of these pre-show matches, which is good because if you if you're like a real nerd that just wants to like fall, I know like a lot of us that listen again. Uh, uh, the tribe we have selected, I think of a lot, a lot of us when we watch a movie, when we watch a wrestling show. We then instantly go, I'm going to then do like a half an hour of homework after consuming this piece of entertainment and research everything you can about it. And one thing I've noticed with a lot of these, like when you go to cage match, a lot of these Ring of Honor pre-show matches are not documented unless you really dig into the newsletters of the time. So it's the kind of thing that, you know, how many percentage of our even our listeners care when I talk about the pre-show matches? 10% maybe if I'm being generous. No, you know what, I, Matt, I think that's, I, I think that's really generous, Trevor. I think, I think people, <laughs> I think people care if like there's an interesting trivia note on the pre-show, but otherwise probably not. I care that if someone is listening to this show, no stone will be on left unturned. They will know that Matt, that the opening match on the show that no one got to see if you, if they bought the DVD was CJ Otis defeating Mitch Franklin at three in three minutes and 10 seconds. And then after that, the fans live, Got to see Trick Davis defeat Rhett Tice in three minutes and five seconds. And then Shane Hagedorn successfully defended his top-of-the-class trophy when he defeated Pele Primo in six minutes, 55 seconds, in a match that Chris Vitter gave the one-word review to of blah. If, and, if, if, uh, if, you're a, um, if you're particularly interested in these pre-show results, I want you to tweet or X or post or whatever you call it about it and with the hashtag #PreshowPro. <laughs> that way we know that these this these uh these results and these uh you know this um you know adherence to the history and the comprehensiveness that Trevor brings to these pre-show results is not going unnoticed. And I I I think your hashtag is better than my proposed one which would be hashtag I like the pre. So um <laughs> well, <laughs> brings grand, us to grand, a grand prix spelled P R E. <laughs> um that brings us to a match that was on cage and, and christopher listed as the opening match but it was in fact again not on the show my best guess we don't have the ring of honor wayback machine the wayback machine does not work for this era of the ring of honor website but I, I would imagine this feels like one of those matches ring of honor was doing at the time where they were filming basically squash matches for some of their biggest stars and then putting them for free on the ROH website as exclusives. This sounds like one of those, because this is Davey Richards defeats Alex Sugarfoot Payne in two minutes, 45 seconds. Total Kurzweiler route, total squash. Davey Richards challenged the Briscoes to come to the ring right now. They didn't. So, yeah, none of that makes the DVD, but I wouldn't be surprised if that did not make the uh, – if that didn't make the uh, Ring of Honor website at the time, because why else would you have Gary Richards wrestle twice in the same night except to say, hey, hey, we're pushing you. Let's get like a little squash for you for the website. But this was also a Chicago debut because he was not on Chi-Town Struggle. So maybe it was to introduce the Chicago fans to Davey. Got to make sure they know that he is a guy who wants to attack the Briscoes and presumably does kicks. But we open with Colt Cabana 
and Lacey all over each other, smooch, not even smooching, but just cuddling outside of the building as an unhappy Jimmy Jacobs looks on just feet away. Um, Colt is bragging to Lacey that he has a love seat, three big couches, pillows, and down comforters. All of this seems to really impress Lacey, and I can tell you folks at home, in real life, telling a girl that you own a moderate amount of furniture and a bedspread does not work as well as it does on this DVD. So Gabe talks from behind the camera. He tells Colt, you know, it's time to cut a promo for your world title match tonight. Colt calls Gabe cock block Malone and asks if he could get him in at first. Lacey tells Colt she had a really good time with him last night, but tonight's going to be even more special because tonight is the night Colt Cabana is going to bring the world title to Lacey's angels. Colt just laughs at this. He tells her, you know, let business be business and fun be fun i don't want any part of Lacey's angels he walks away Lacey gets all frustrated and she turns and takes it on poor jimmy jacobs telling him that he better take out bj whitmer in their match tonight do you see the power dynamic hierarchy at play here where jimmy <laughs> it look you know put puts Lacey up on a pedestal while colt is just sort of like using her and not taking her seriously it's very nuanced trevor a, a classic Archie Andrews style love triangle. But, um, so, um, Lacey Andrews, I mean, <laughs> Lacey Andrews, uh, Lacey then asks, um, Jimmy if he has a problem because she sees how he's been moping. Jimmy broods for a second, but then eventually he breaks open and goes, no, 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 no problem. I cherish all the time I have together with you and Lacey's angels. Jimmy says, in fact, he's even more determined to do whatever Lacey wants to win her love. So if he has to kill BJ Whitmer tonight, if he has to kill for love, he says, he will. Lacey says, you know, just as long as you hurt him and walks away. And then Jimmy appears to almost start crying. So Jimmy in the great emotional turmoil at this point. We've always talked about how um, Gabe was really good at having wrestlers, single wrestlers, have multiple feuds going on the burner at the same time. It was something Gabe was pretty good at. And so I do like in one sense how his Colts feud with Danielson is winding down and basically ending tonight. His story with Jimmy that's and Lacey that's been kind of percolating on the last few shows in the background is really heating. It's going to start heating up and become the his, his A storyline, so to speak. It's, inter- it's, inter- it's, it's interesting how unlikable it makes Colt, though. Yeah, but it's also created, I was going to say, it's also created this weird thing on this double shot where if you just watch this double shot on one side of the story, they're trying to sell it that, you know, this is the, tonight's the most important match of Cole Cabana's career. You know, he winning the world title is the most important thing to him. But if you look at the segments on this weekend, most of them are just about how all he wants to do is make out with his new fling and he really doesn't care. Like, I don't really want to cut the last night. He was like, you know, I got to watch the main event tonight. And then later we see, he's just making out with Lacey tonight. You know, it's like, Oh, do you want to cut a promo about your main event tonight? He's like, uh, can I just kiss my, my girl more? It's like, it, it, it's one example where the storylines are kind of working against each other, but. Although maybe, maybe it's uh, by, maybe it's by design too, you know? Hmm, I Gabe is playing 4D chess at all times, Trevor. So uh next we cut to BJ Whitmer backstage who says he and Jimmy are set to do this dance one more time. In the previous two encounters, things got crazier and more insane each time. And tonight BJ says he's gonna push the envelope just a little bit further and put Jacobs behind him so he can start his new chapter, the one where he wins the ROH world title. I just wrote my notes. You know, BJ Whitmer says, you know, we've done this, you know, things have gotten crazier and crazier each time we've wrestled. And I wrote my notes. If you've done something twice, is it a really big deal to say things have gotten crazier each time? That means things have gotten crazier one time. Like, if I've done something twice, I say each time things have gotten crazier. Technically, 
Also, it's one instance of things gotten crazier. Also, he says like, "Oh, now it's time for me to go after the world title." But you know, technically, he did just get a world title shot two months earlier. Um, but uh, you know, the ROH has a small roster, so I guess cycling back to somebody it still counts. And that brings us to the opener, the main card opener, the one that you'd actually get to see if you bought the DVD. It's Nigel McGuinness and the embassy of Jimmy Jacobs and Sal Monaro defeating Delirious and Irish Airborne in 13 minutes, 52 seconds, when Nigel pinned Jake Crist after he hit a rebound lariat. Um, Matt, this is the second straight ROH double shot we've watched. You know, the second straight ROH double shot in a row that happened chronologically where Nigel McGuinness wrestled Brian Danielson on the first night, suffered a legit concussion, and then gets booked in a random six-man the next night with the announcers during the match telling us he was booked in this random six-man match because he suffered a concussion and he needs to take it easy. So uh, a rough month for Nigel McGuinness. What do you think about the match? Yeah, it's man, you really cringe when you think about how wrestlers, how often wrestlers did that back then, where they just get a concussion and they just wrestle the next night. It's, it sounds insane now, but it was just like... It was really normal up through the 2000s, huh? Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, so one, one thing you notice is Nigel has a black eye, like, or it's like developing a bruise around his eye, at least, uh, right at the beginning, um, you know, just so we have real evidence that he did suffer some uh, hits on the noggin the night before. Um, so this is, the, again, another show where we don't have uh, Prince Nana or Daisy Hayes. And uh, Prezak says that he has Gary Michael Capetta on the case, hopefully getting the scoop about them. So I want to ask if you remember, do Nana and Hayes come back with Rave and Renaro again, or is this it? Because obviously I know that Nana's gone by the end of the year, but is he back again before he's gone for good? Uh, so here's the thing I was going to tell you because I, I was thinking like normally we like to – if it's someone significant, we do a little kind of mini goodbye segment. I think like we'll, – I think we can probably save it for the next couple shows where, where, the store, where the news breaks chronologically that Nana's not coming back. I think we've seen the last of them. I, I, I think we – I think the UK shows might have been the – I know when I was looking at the notes for the next couple episodes – it's sometime during the next double shot where the story comes out that like Nana's parting ways with Ring of Honor. Um, I don't think he works the New York shows, and if that's the case, then yeah, we've already seen well, the last of them. Well, 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 Ray wasn't know. even on the New York shows. So. Yeah, so yeah, he, he. I'm pretty sure then he's gone. I mean, he does come back in Ring of Honor like well into 2008. Obviously, he we're in a, like a Nana Renaissance right now, but, but uh, yeah, we have probably seen the last of them maybe in the through the years timeline. Yeah, wow, just kind of like a inauspicious goodbye. Um, that's crazy. I mean, I think if you listen to the show enough, I think you know that I love Prince Nana, and I I'm so happy to see you know the uh, notoriety and the uh, you know kind of the spotlight he's getting now. But he was so good throughout his entire run in ROH. You know, I I you know certainly had my criticisms of the Jade Chunk storyline, but. You know, none of that was, I mean, uh, you know, he wasn't the one who booked it. You know, he just played the character the best that he could. And uh, I think he he was always very funny. He was always very entertaining. He always gave it his all. So I know you want to kind of save a bigger retrospective for later. No, we we could do it now, actually. This would probably be a good one, too, actually, now that I think about it. But no, um, I I mean, I mean, I mean, listen, I mean, I think probably if you look back um, when Jimmy Rave first turned heel and stuff, I don't know how many people really expected him to get over the way he did or to leave the mark in ROH that he did. 
And, you know, Rave obviously was great in the role, but Nana was a huge part in that, especially early on before, you know, Rave really, you know, became comfortable and continued to develop. So uh, I think he was, you know, one of the, one of the top performers in ROH during this, uh, during this era. And, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll be sad not to have him to uh, talk about anymore. Yeah, I, I he was one of the great managers of Ring of Honor history, and I think he's something that you know ROH didn't have a lot of in 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 its history, probably. Which is like he was he was, the, genuine, he, was the, he was the greatest manager in ROH history. I don't even feel like I have to think about it. Like he was a genuine character in the sense of, um, like, you know, his his mic work is obviously one of his big selling points. But not, I wouldn't say that he cuts like a good meat and potatoes, like tells you a story, gets you like hyped up for a match style promo you know stuff like that they would even talk about sometimes like you would hear like people talk about like nana sometimes would miss his cue and like interfering or or stuff like that but what just what made him great is like every moment you see him he's one of those people that's just entertaining like everything he does you know from his work at ringside to everything he says to just i mean look how over he is now in AEW, just dancing you know he just can't with a dance move um yeah, he's he's just great, and especially great because like you look at him. If I just describe someone who what Prince Nana is on paper, it's oh, it's a rich guy, rich a rich heel manager who like buys people to be part of a stable. That's descri- that's like such a basic classic wrestling manager archetype. But he's just again, he's so entertaining. Like he's just his performance is so good that it, it kind of it, it. I don't know. It, 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 it elevates the trope. Into uh, yeah, exactly. you know, something something special, which is I think he was something special. I mean, he still is, but in this era, I think he was he was really special in ROH. And he was just so good at being so joyous, but also sometimes he could be so mad. Just you know, his his I always remember his love of shrimp cocktail or you know great baths that they could they could rush to the hotel and have. And, um, and I'll never forget him uh, telling you to. Sp- Pick it up, and when you were using the washroom during a Ring of Honor show, so no, no, it was, uh, that's a great the, story the, that he the, the, the water fountain. He wasn't like the water fountain. He was not bugging me in the bathroom. Oh God damn it! I, I like that version better. <laughs> that's the story in my head. I like there that. were no there were no wrestlers like telling me to, to, there were no wrestlers telling me to pee or poop faster. I was just <laughs> I was just taking too long at the water fountain uh, in the in the lobby. Thirty second roll, my man. Thirty seconds. <laughs> Oh, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, Matt, what do you think of this match? We're, we are in a loopy, I'm, I'm in a, I just barely got to the show in time tonight. I am still kind of discompopulated. So I will get going quickly. Trust me from this year on out folks. I will, I will, but if I, I, will kind I will try, I will try to combobulate us. Okay. Um, okay. So, so here's my, how about this match? Matt? Here's my attempt at combobulation. Um, so yeah. Um, so, um, you know, they, First of all, I think this one of the stories of this match is Nigel is in a transition period where he's becoming full babyface. I'd say by the end of the New York double shot, he's just a babyface, no ambiguity. Um, here, he's on the heel team, but he still mostly acts like a babyface. He like as he watches the uh, the toilet paper shower, he finds it very amusing. He laughs at it. Um, there's a point where he and I think it is delirious. Are doing a stare down and J and Jimmy Rave uh, jumps delirious from behind and Nigel's pretty upset at Rave about that. So he's he's trying to be an honorable guy while teaming with a couple of dishonorable 
jackasses, as you might say. Um, that's that's the story here. Um, at one point, uh, Jared David describes Salonaro's ring gear as a, quote, skirt that has been chewed up by a shark, which is very interestingly specific. Um, I uh, wouldn't have thought of that, but I guess I guess it's not an in, uh, inaccurate description. Um, I thought this was, you know, it's pretty basic, but I thought it was pretty fun. I, um, I, you know, N- uh, Nigel's pretty popular among the Chicago crowd here. Rave and Renaro did their, uh, you know, did their little goofiness with uh, Rave slapping Sal at different points. Um, Rave is uh, doing some stalling. There's a spot where Delirious is like crisscrossing the ring with Renaro, and then instead he suddenly just like r- jumps out of the ring and runs around it instead of continuing the crisscross. Um, so they were doing their thing. I thought Irish Airborne looked better than they have in a while here. I thought uh, – so at this – in this era, I always thought at the time and now that 2006 Dave Christ looked a lot like 2006 Randy Orton. And I feel like I'm not the only one that thought that. I feel like I remember people saying that at the time. But at one point, Dave hits an extremely nice standing drop kick, which I thought even added to the Randy Orton comparisons to me. Did you ever notice that similarity between those two people? Um, you know, it's one of those things where I don't think I ever did, but now that you say it, I, I can see it. Maybe yeah, it yeah. ever I like mean, applied I mean, you gotta, a lengthy remember You also got to remember what Randy looked like at that time, which is pretty yeah. pretty different than what he looks what he's looked like for a long time since. So, um, so I think that that's a part of it. He certainly doesn't look like Randy Orton does now. Um, but um, I you know I thought there was uh there was some fun stuff with um. Irish Airborne doing double team stuff. There was some fun stuff with Sal and Rave doing like one two combos, like Sal hitting a chin breaker and Rave running right into the running knee, uh, or, or Sal doing a super kick and Rave immediately hitting a spear. Uh, I love their combos. I think they do a really good job. Uh, there's a, uh, a really nice spot the crowd goes nuts for when Irish Airborne hit a powerbong lung blower combination on Renaro. Um, the crowd gets really into Irish Airborne, which again has not been the case for a while. So, you know, you could tell that they had they were having an above average night for them here. Um, eventually, it gets into a, a series of back and forths where um, Nigel stacks the excuse me, Delirious stacks the embassy on top of each other, so each member of Irish Airborne can jump off with a double stomp onto Renaro, who's on top of the other two, um, and then. Irish Airborne each do dives onto the embassy members, which leaves Delirious to fight alone with Nigel. And Nigel goes for the uh, for the rope straddle lariat on Delirious, but Irish Airborne catches him with a double drop kick on the top rope. And Nigel stays up top while Irish Airborne fight with the embassy. And eventually everyone clears out. And Nigel, who's still on the top rope, hits the rope straddle lariat on Dave Christ and then the rebound lariat on Jake Christ and gets the win for his team. Um, yeah, I thought this was, uh, I thought this was an above average opener. Um, and I thought that Nigel looked like he was having fun in spite of his injuries. And I thought that Irish Airborne looked good and, uh, Rave and Renaro, uh, did, a, you know, some fun examples of their shtick and it wasn't anything to write home about, but it was also nothing to write home in a negative way about, you know, to write your parents and be like, I just saw the worst opening <laughs> match parents you don't you shouldn't you wouldn't do that if you saw this match either 
So um, I pretty much completely agree. In fact, you covered most of the things I uh, wanted to say. Yeah, so this was a match where they didn't use Nigel that much. It, they kind of – I. But uh, to their credit, like you were mentioning, they kind of turned that into the story. And, and I, I like everything that you said that they did there where I, I thought it was nice that, yeah, they used to this match. As in, you know, it was basically when you really think about it, it's like a throwaway match that's just there because you, you want to use Nigel and, you know, he's hurt. So you can't put him in something big. But it worked really well because, yeah, he got to show the different ways to, of letting you know that, you know, he's no longer a heel. The fact that, like you were mentioning, he's laughing at everyone teeping Jimmy before the match. The fact that he's pissed off when they heal, you know, the fact that Jimmy and, and Sal, like, don't tag him for most of the match unless they absolutely have to, which protects him in, like, a legitimate way, but also kind of tells the story. Again, these heels kind of don't like this guy. They they realize, oh, he's not really playing along on our wavelength these days. And, you know, then you let Nigel come in for, like, the final 60 or 90 seconds, run wild, pick up the win. So, you know, it's always weird seeing guys suffer big concussions in in this era and then wrestle the next night, but I guess they kind of protected them by the standards of the day. Um, yeah, the highlights, I, I, I like you, I want to make a note of how cool those, um, those double teams that Jimmy and Sal do are really cool. And you describe both of them and they're so simple. Like, I feel like double teams these days are always like really, or not always, but oftentimes really intricate or complicated where these double teams, like they're simple moves they do all the time, but they're, they're cool just because they happen like bang, bang real quick. And I feel like that's something maybe that wrestlers should think about a little more these days where like, it's just cool to see like a super kick. If you see a super kick and then like a three second pause and then a spear, that's not really a great double team. But if it's like a super kick and just immediately, like sometimes in these when they do these combos, you'll even see it's like Jimmy Ray's just like coming out of frame where you don't even realize that it's going to be a double team. And that looks so cool. It's just such it feels so impactful when you do stuff really quick back to back like that. I feel like they were hitting on some good double teams in in some of these tag matches lately where they were kind of picking up on like if we just hit things like real quick and snappy, it has a bigger impact than just us doing these moves separately. Um, the three, the, the, all three guys getting stacked on top and then the Chris coming off on doing the top rope splash and the top rope double stomp. That was really cool. So yeah, overall, I would say this is, wasn't anything special, but it's one of those above average little undercard matches that fills out a card and feels like they've done enough to positively contribute to a show. Like it's not, it's, it's more than filler, I would say, but even though technically it is filler, but it's not one of those things where it's like, Oh God, this is just a waste of my life. It's like, no, this was, I don't regret the time I spent watching this match. You know, you get a, and like, like you were kind of touching on, it's a, it's a little sampler, right? You get a couple laughs, you get a couple chances to boo guys, you get a couple big exciting spots near the end, you get get a little bit of a few different things. It's a nice sampler. And I also did like during the handshakes at the very start, Dave Crystal has his hand in the, the cast, and I love Sal Renato's reaction where like he notices the cast, he acts like he just realized that he has a cast, and he just starts laughing. I mean, like the meanest, most like immature way, like he's just like laughing, like you got a cast, and I. It was so stupid. It just, it was very fun. It, it, it was Sal Renaro at his best. But that brings us to the second match. Jimmy Jacobs scored to the ring by Lacey, defeated DJ Whitmer in 11 minutes, one second with a roll up. Um, this is hard for me to judge because I, I, I would describe this match, Matt, as this was disappointing to me, yet there were also things I liked about it. I, I've said this with their other matches, and I think it applies here. There's a unique electricity where these two wrestle each other, where you're constantly afraid these two 
are going to hurt each other or at least try something insane. And while maybe that's not the healthiest vibe to have in matches, I also continue to say it does make them more exciting and feel special. And this match does definitely have that. They definitely do try something that goes nuts. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, I also like that other than that vibe, their matches generally have this feeling that, you know, they really want to hurt each other. You know, it, it feels like a wrestling match. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a complete, like, gritty brawl, but they, it does feel, you know, it doesn't quite feel just like another Ring of Honor indie match on the card either. You know, they do a bring, ringside brawl early, and, you know, even stuff like Jimmy Jacobs doing these little showy headbutt variations, like, they're, they're, they're very pro wrestling, but they're also a little bit goofy, but they also kind of feel harsher than just, say, throwing a drop kick, you know? And so I appreciate the vibe of the match in that sense. I would say my issues, though, start with this match. It has a pretty meandering pace at points. There are times where it kind of remind me of Jimmy's match with Homicide on the last show that we just covered, where he's standing around a moment too long doing nothing at certain points. It feels like the energy is kind of getting sucked out of the room. Things feel kind of slightly awkward. It, this match sometimes also kind of felt like, to me, like rather than building to the finish, it feels like you're getting the kind of, the kind of slower sometimes plotting first third of a long match. And then they jump to the big scary stunt bump that they're known for. And then at that point, um, you, you get a couple of exciting minutes at the end and then they go quickly to this abrupt finish, which is, again, is something they've kind of done before, but yeah. So anyway, talking about the stunt bump, in this case, it's Whitmer's BJ sits up a table at ringside. He goes to try and power bomb Jimmy through it. Jimmy avoids it. So then BJ decides, you know what? I'm going to do what I did the last time we wrestled. He motions to the crowd, like, clear out of the way. I'm going to power bomb Jimmy off the top turnbuckle into the crowd. Jimmy avoids that, fights through. And instead, he does a Rana off the top turnbuckle, Rana-ing BJ off the top through the table on the floor. Except it comes off incredibly ugly because Jimmy basically, he, he does the Rana as safe as you can take a Rana do a Rana off the top rope to the outside. Because it's not even really a Rana in the end. It's like a head scissors where he like falls onto the top rope. Yeah. Like he leans so far, like, you know, they're, they're, he's aiming him to the outside, but he's leaning so far as he does the head scissors that he falls back into the ring. So, you know, he was going way off to the side yeah. very weirdly because you could tell he was like, you know, I'm not going to fucking fall to the floor again. We've been through that before. So he, he's doing it way off to the side. So he lands back in the ring. <laughs> And then meanwhile, BJ then, he like, instead of taking like, you know, a normal bump you take on a run where you just do a forward flip, he basically just jumps forward, lands on his feet on the apron, like lands on his neck and chest on the rope, and then rebounds off the apron, off the apron onto this table that's right by the ring, except he lands feet first and the table flips. Yeah, and it just looks very chaotic. It's yeah, basically a, it's basically a botch, but they end up like landing a big bump. Um, which yeah. I guess is sort of what happened in their first match too, but it, this one does not look as impressive. Yeah, it, it looks very ugly, but again, kind of meeting that BJ Jimmy vibe, it almost works in their favor because it also looks incredibly dangerous and reckless and like something went horribly long, wrong. Probably because it did, although I also, again, feel like I rewatched a couple times. I also don't know how wrong it went because I also feel like both, a lot of the things that were off were probably these guys deciding, you know, let's do a match and not hurt each other like on the big spot because they Again, I feel like that Rana from Jimmy's probably by design, so he doesn't even have to land on the apron. And BJ's probably even, 
I wouldn't be surprised if that was him trying to like do the table bump without, you know, j- basically jumping off the apron to do the table bump instead of just flying off the top turnbuckle to do the table bump, except the table. Fl- Again, it, you kind of have to see it to really get how ugly and weird this went off, came off. But anyway, after the bump, they do something that they very, we've very rarely ever seen in Ring of Honor, which is they do a count out tease in a non pure rules match. Because remember, like in regular Ring of Honor matches, there technically isn't supposed to be a count. There's supposed to be, the rule is basically if the ref feels like the wrestlers have fought on the outside too long, they can call the match off. That, that's always been the rule. And we've almost never seen that, that rule used because that would be an annoying finish. But in this match, you know, BJ selling, Jimmy gets back into the ring and the ref basically informs everyone that he's going to count to 10. And if BJ doesn't get back in the ring by the 10 count, he's going to give Jimmy the win. So it basically for, for this match, he, the ref decides that countouts are appropriate. Um, BJ is getting helped by a bunch of students to the back. And it, you know, obviously the count, the whole reason the countouts even being done is so can, BJ can have a big dramatic, you know, shoves people away, gets back in the ring, the back at the last second, he's going to fight. And that happens, you know, big dramatic thing. BJ's back in the ring. And from there, we get like a few moves, a, a near fall or two. And it feels like, oh, oh, this match is now clicking into like the final gear. It's getting really, ex- it's getting exciting. And then Jimmy wins out of nowhere with a roll up, which again, it's another one of those things like kind of going to the whole, to the whole match. I don't know if I, if I like it or I don't like it. Because on one hand, it's very anticlimactic and out of no, nowhere. And it's another one of these Jimmy BJ matches that feels like, I think like the last match ended on the big bump in the crowd where it feels like, oh, they could have had like a few more exciting minutes of the match. They were just getting going before they did the bump. This match, again, it feels like it's just getting going. They're getting to the really the meat of it. And then they have this abrupt ending. But on the other hand, Jimmy being the heel here, it kind of works. Uh, and knowing that they're going to have more matches in the future, it does kind of work as kind of a, a bummer ending It d- for the heel. And it does kind of feel like, it's not a cheating win for Jimmy, but it does kind of feel like he got lucky in a sense where, you know, he didn't, he did not beat BJ Whitmer by incapacitating him. He beat BJ Whitmer by kind of surprising him when he was already hurt. Um, overall, I would give this like an above average. I would say like the vibe of this match, it's, it's a more memorable match than above average match, but it's a very flawed kind of weird match in my opinion. Um, I had a lot of the same observations as you, but I felt more negatively about pretty much every one of them. I thought I thought this was not a good match. Like I I, I didn't I didn't like. It. I thought it was by far the worst of their three matches. Um, I thought the crowd heat was really bad for it, which was surprising because they usually have good heat. Um, even that, like you mentioned, that awkward you know big bump that they had in the match with the with the head scissors slash Rana off the top rope that it kind of works in their favor. I did not think it worked in their favor at all. I thought the crowd like didn't know how to react. They eventually, after being extremely quiet, started chanting BJ, but I thought the whole thing was very awkward. Uh, the match itself, I just thought was kind of plotting, um, like you mentioned, and just kind of all over the place. The outside brawl at the beginning was slow. You know, I, I you know, I still like what, um, uh, Jacobs is way too dangerous. Uh, headbutt, missile headbutt that he does these in these matches during the summer, but I don't know. I just thought something felt very off. I mean, part of it, I'm sure, was BJ's injury. Um, but in general, I don't know. I, I I thought the most entertaining part of the match was the return of our old friend, um, upsetting commentary, which we haven't had in a while. <laughs> um, 
which um, very early in the match, Prezak was yelling about, quote, They were having sex in the shower. I'm talking about Colt Cabana and Lacey. Jimmy Jacobs saw it with his own eyes. Um, so there was that. And then there was a part where Jacobs, where Prezak says, Jacobs is an idiot for not kicking her to the curb, which is not how I would frame this situation, but uh, that's what Prezak says. And then, of course, what was the highlight of this whole sequence? Guess who comes back on commentary and makes a cameo? Jimmy Bauer, who, uh, Gabe Sapolsky, who is happy to say, quote, I was pretty happy with what was going on in the shower last night because I wanted to watch. Um, so we're going way back to 2003 levels here. Um, that's certainly the most memorable part of this match um, to me. But I thought it, the match had a shocking lack of heat. And I, I think that goes back to, honestly, I don't think that's really the fault of the wrestlers or, or the match. I think in another time or place, this would have had a better reaction. But I thought this did was a little bit of a weird crowd on this on this night. So I think that's part of it. But I think all in all, I thought this was a... Uh, yeah, I, I thought this was a, not a good match, despite the fact that they were working very hard, as they always do. My favorite thing about that commentary that you described was uh, Dave Frazek says that one. When he, Dave Frazek says, you know, he, you know, Jimmy saw Colt Lacey having sex in the shower. Jimmy saw it with his own eyes. We saw that segment. It was on the DVD. They were fully clothed and, like, making out in the corner. Yes, they were in the shower, but they weren't. Like, we saw what happened. They were not naked. Uh, they were yeah, not well, having sex. You didn't, you didn't see that they went, they, they went back after the camera left, and they went back right, <laughs> right back at it. And Jimmy did. They, they didn't wait for Jimmy to leave. They're like, you can watch. Yeah, he did. Well, he yeah, well that's exactly. They were rubbing it right in his face. I've been there. But, um. Really? <laughs> so after the match. <laughs> after the match, uh, DJ Whitmer, uh, he immediately leaps to his feet to argue with the ref about, you know, that was, you know, that wasn't three. You know, that was a quick roll. That, but that, that wasn't three. Lacey throws Jimmy a chair while BJ's arguing. And then he hits BJ in the leg with it, followed by a big unprotected chair shot to the head. Because why not? Um, Jimmy then flips off BJ as the crowd chants, fuck you, Jimmy. So he is getting a little bit of heat here. Uh, Jacobs hits BJ's injured foot with a chair multiple times. Then he does a concerto to the ankle. Then he stacks a third chair on the ankle and does a top rope senton onto it. Uh, Lacey at this time is screaming at Whitmer that, you know, I told you you were going to pay. The crowd now switches to chanting, fuck you, Lacey, as refs and students check on BJ. And so, yeah, this was for those who are not following the, the timeline with us. If you want us to explain the reason behind these things this was obviously a big angle to uh write bj whitmer out of the company for a little bit as he got surgery for his ankle um you know yeah. he suffered it obviously during wrestlemania weekend where in the first jimmy jacobs bj whitmer match at roh where they fell off the the uh, top turnbuckle to the floor and he broke his ankle and he basically held on for all this time this is giving him the out yeah, finally. Um, yeah, but he, it's funny because like all that he wrestled all the time in that bum ankle, but he's really only out for a couple of months. I think he comes back in early November. Yeah, like I'll go to the news reporting of what happened at the time. Uh, the Torch wrote: BJ Whitmer underwent ankle reconstruction surgery last week and will be out of action for an extended period of time. Are we just hopeful Whitmer will return before the end of the year? And yeah, like you just said, I looked it up. He misses only like a little over two months because, like you said, he's back in early November. So he's not out very long at all, actually, for a guy getting ankle reconstruction surgery. Um, hopes for Adam Cole, oh, I guess. Yeah, well, and then, are you, are you hoping that he comes back that quick or that he actually takes his time to heal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, you know, I mean, Adam takes 
think as long as you want. But uh, Figure Four Weekly, Brian Elvis wrote at the time, BJ Whitmer will miss three to four months after undergoing reconstructive ankle surgery. He completely tore off two ligaments and had bone chips and cartilage removed. So, yeah, like he way exceeded that time frame. He, he comes back a little over two. So, um, and, and I think I mentioned this on past show. But again, I know BJ Wimmer said on a shoot interview, he really praised ROH for how they handled his recovery here because, you know, he told them like, look, I'll meet all these dates. I want to do all this stuff first, but then I'm going to need time off. And he noted that like the next two shows, he said, I was not on the shows at all. And they said, look, we're going to pay you 75% of your rate just to stay home. And he said like, that's unheard of in indie wrestling. And then he said, all the other shoes, once I was at the point where I was in a a walking boot all the other shows i missed they were like well if you can come here and like shoot a promo even we'll we'll fill, we'll pay you your full rate and he was just like very appreciative of that because saying you know indie wrestling if you miss a show generally you ain't getting dime one so Carrie marshall a little bit of a carrie silken what oh, a guy yeah carrie silken yeah carrie silken uh, i i feel like there's a few stories that you know carrie silken doing stuff like this so um we then join Samoa Joe backstage. who says, tonight, Claudio Casanova will have no, no tricks, no backup, no help. He says, in war, there are always stragglers, hangers-on, renegades, and those renegades need to be eliminated. Joe then calls Claudio a, both a renegade but also a wild Swiss man, which made me chuckle. Um, Joe says, in America, there is one penalty for treason, and that's death. And tonight, he's going to kill Claudio. So. <laughs> that that turned very direly serious, but I I did like Joe's framing of I I, I do like that Claudio's in kind of this weird zone where the CZW feud's over, but because of the storyline, he has a ring of honor contract. He's still there, but I do like that guys like BJ and Joe have not like just complete like when they have to wrestle, they're still remembering the CZW feud, like how just kind of viewing him as basically like you know this little loose end, which I guess is kind of how BJ, would, I, I, you know, again, I like that they do the little extra mile to give you a little bit of connective tissue, for sure. And that brings us to then we cut back to the ring from that promo. BJ Whitmer is being helped out of the ring. He's carried with his legs elevated off the ground. He can't even put any weight on his feet as, you know, the crowd chants for him. And he just whimpers, just get me to the back. Fuck. And it was like, you normally, you BJ were a very like tough kind of character. So it was, it was interesting to see him do like be almost whiny. Now I feel bad. Cause like, look, if my ankle was screwed up legitimately and I was selling an ankle, I would be whiny too. I'm, I'm whiny often, not in that situation, but it was just, it was interesting to hear BJ Whitmer as you've never heard him before, Matt. But, um, that was the uh, that was the big time. selling that was a big selling point for this DVD. Hear BJ Whitmer as you never heard him before for about four <laughs> seconds. <laughs> so um, now it's time for Jim Cornette to come into the ring for his first live in-person Ring of Honor appearance since I think Death Before Dishonor Four, which would have been only a month and a half of time earlier, but also that also would have been eight Ring of Honor shows earlier. So in the through the years timeline, man, that means 10 years ago. Exactly. Um, we have not mentioned we Jim get- Cornette in <laughs> decades. Yeah. So first we get a Jim Cornette's usual Midnight Express theme that he comes out to in Ring of Honor before it cuts to Gimme Back My Bullets. And then he comes out with, in fact, the Briscoe. So some fans start to boo. Cornette gets to the mic and he tells them not to be like that. A homicide chant starts up. Cornette points out that the Briscoes are here with him, not because he's scared, but because Homicide's a nut, and he didn't come out here to be jumped on. He came out here to explain some things. He also wants to apologize to some people. Cornette points out that he's been coming to Chicago for 20 years and would like 10 minutes to explain some things. He says, I've been reading online, so all this online reporting about what happened at Death 
for Dishonor, and I've been seeing people say Jim Cornette's going to become a heel commissioner. Cornette calls that the most oldest, most trite, overdone, cliche wrestling business move in the world. He'd have thought that the people that write on the internet would have given Ring of Honor, a promotion known for cutting-edge wrestling, more credit than that. And he thought that those same people on the internet who who usually think he's so great, other times would have given him more credit than that. I'm going to interrupt for a second because I want to know if you, for yeah. your knowledge of history. So I know that by like 2006, be a heel, you know, heel authority figure was overdone. But before, like, let's say Eric Bischoff in WCW in '96, how common was it in like mainstream American wrestling, like, to have heel authority figures, like in the in the '80s or early '90s or in the territory era? Like, was that a overdone? hacky trope or did it really become a thing during the monday night war era i really don't think it was i mean i'm sure there's there's always examples of everything but when you think about even just in our lifetimes like if we would say like like you just mentioned i think that's a good starting point we would say like the first of kind of the modern era in a big company like heel authority figure would probably be when eric bischoff joined the nwo right and then you think about before then like the authority figures in WCW and WWF in the nineties before then were always like the baby face guys. That was like Jack Tunney, Gorilla Monsoon, you know, it, it, you know, I, I feel like yeah, there'd be fe- authority fe- figures. Fe- feckless, but not heels, you know, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say there'd be authority figures that fans would boo or dislike, but more they, you, you weren't supposed to dislike them or maybe you were, but they weren't because they were evil and doing machinations. It was because sometimes they would be kind of portrayed as, like you said, feckless or incompetent or just like, but, but they were never like openly cruel or, 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 and then you think of the eighties and stuff like that. No, I really don't think like, and, and then, yeah, it became more of a trope, but I think people just got so sick of it. You know, I think feel guys like Vince Russo just hammered it to death, right? With like all the stuff, like all the powers that be. I mean, WWE too. Like WWE was like absolutely addicted to it for decades. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, once the Vince thing became successful, I mean, yeah, it it became just this massive thing. And it's weird because I feel like, like there might have been something we read once a long time ago. I vaguely recall this, but I don't remember for sure if it was something we read. But I think I heard something about like Ring of Honor early on was like, yeah, we're not even going to have a commissioner. It wasn't even really till Cornette that they kind of broke with it like years into the company, which is crazy when you think about Because again, going to what you said, Ring of Honor started in 2002. Like they haven't, there hadn't been that many years of like commit overbearing commissioners in pro wrestling, but it was, it was already overdone to such a point that like Ring of Honor already felt like, oh, there's fatigue from this. Like yeah. people don't want to see this. AEW has been, you but, know, um, for all the criticisms you can make about AEW, so far they've avoided that. Yeah. Um, and so we go back to the Cornette thing and thank God for the break because there's a lot to this Cornette thing. Um, Cornette goes over, he basically recaps the entire CZW ROH feud. He talks about, you know, how he got his tooth knocked out during a CZW ROH wrestlers brawl. He talked about how he got his knee injured and had to get surgery. He points out that death before dishonor was the weekend of a TNA pay-per-view and Cornette at the, I, for those who don't know, Cornette was working both TNA and ROH simultaneously at this time. And Cornette points out, you know, I'm like John Madden. I don't fly anywhere. So I chose to be in Philly for Ring of Honor that weekend over Florida for the TNA pay-per-view. He said, he said, he frames that he says, I chose my heart over my pocketbook. And that actually got some applause from the fans, you know, that were booing him a little bit before this. 
Cornette recaps how he you know, he held the fifth spot open in the Cage of Death match for Homicide at Death Before Dishonor, but Homicide held him up. He only wanted to do it if he could get three wishes. Cornette points out that Homicide wouldn't be wrestling all over the world and in TNA without ROH giving him all that exposure, so he thought Homicide would want to wrestle for Ring of Honor and return the favor. He recaps then how the night of Death Before Dishonor, Brian Danielson offered to take that fifth spot. Jim calls Brian a sneak and a conniving little bastard who was only out for his own agenda. Jim admits, I fell for it. You know, he, he fooled me. And then Jim also openly admits that Homicide ended up saving the day when Brian flaked out on them. You know, he says Homicide saved the day for Ray Vaughn. He turned the tide almost single-handedly. Um, Jim then says, I put over Homicide after the match. I, I offered to give him any three things he wanted that were in my power to give. And then he says, you know, he, Homicide says, you know, he wanted to wrestle Steve Rick- Carino again. I said yes to that. He wanted a world title match. I said yes to that. But then Homicide wanted me to bring back Loki and just bring up Loki, get some cheers from the crowd. Cornet calls Loki the clumsy idiot that in the CZW Ring of Honor backstage brawl threw a chair that accidentally hit Cornet, knocked out his tooth. But he says, besides that, none of these fans have ever had to work with Loki on a business level. They've never had to do, deal with his bookings, his money, and his matches. He calls him a pain in the ass that will be out of Ring of Honor as long as Cornette's around. Cornette points out that he told Homicide he'd do any three things for Homicide, not for his friends. Cornette says Homicide then called him a fucking liar, and where Cornette comes from, that's about the lowest thing you can call somebody, is a fucking liar, which I would just say, you live in a nice place, then, because I can't think of worse things to call people. Um, Jim says he's not known for being a liar, he's known for saying what he thinks, and he's not appreciating somebody who's been in this business for 15 minutes calling him that. That gets a couple of kind of like groaning ooze from the crowd and you can tell jim realizes like oh like that kind of hit the fans in a way like that's not good heat so jim seems to almost realize that in the moment maybe this is me like reading too much into things but you can kind of see him then clarify like he goes he he goes well homicide in comparison to me how long i've been in the business feels like he's been around 15 minutes kind of softening it a little bit because it did kind of feel like he was big time in ring of honor for a second there corporate then says you know I questioned why Homicide would give up a shot at something for Homicide, uh, give up something for himself, for Loki, why he and Loki were so close. Jim Cornette then says, in a very, like, matter-of-fact, like, soft-selling way, he goes, I questioned that relationship, which I just wrote in my notes, is a pretty classy way of recapping the fact that he called him homicide. Uh, just going, I questioned that relationship. So, well, um, well, that, well, that's the heel move, isn't it? To like kind of downplay the inflammatory nature of what you did, right? Yeah, ex- exactly. Cornet points out that homicide then spit in his face. He said the loogie smelled like the crotch of Oprah Winfrey's pantyhose. Boy, so you're getting, so you're, get, you're getting homophobia, misogyny, possibly racism, all all rolled into one. A, a classic old school wrestling promo. He's going after Chicago's own, Matt. Um, Cornette said he and J.J. Dillon made homicide sorry. He spit in his face. They taught him a lesson. They showed him his place. And But what really pissed Jim off was a lot of the fans that night. He says not all of them, but many were then yelling at him that he sucked. They were flipping him off. Cornette says he's done a lot for Ring of Honor. He's brought in Bobby Heenan, Percy Pringle, Bill Watts, the Midnight Express. He hosted the Straight Shooting DVD interview series for Ring of Honor for some of this it, the dvds he served as commissioner he's promoted the company across the country on radio shows and now because he has a beef with one guy 
The fans tell him, fuck you, you suck. Jim thinks every fan in Philly should go back and examine what they were thinking that night. He thinks the fans in Philly that night that supported him and genuinely apologize. No, he thanks the fans that night in Philly that supported him and genuinely apologizes to the Philly fans that didn't understand at the time what he did. But for the fans that said, fuck you, Cornette says, it's not fuck me, it's fuck you. There's a lot of fucks in here. Um, Cornet then tells the Ring of Honor roster, they're cool. You know, he and them, they're cool. He's not going to be some bad guy. He's not going to start cheating them out of matches. He's not going to drag Samoa Joe out here and set him on fire. He says all that kind of stuff is bullshit. He says the only problem I have with anybody is with Homicide and anybody on his side. And if you're not with Cornet, you're against him. You're against me. He goes, Homicide committed career suicide by spinning in his face. And then they'll take about six weeks or so before Homicide's wrestling career is done. Jim says he'll do whatever he can do to get Homicide out of the wrestling business. Jim thanks everyone that applauded him tonight and says to all the people who want to mull over what he said tonight and that haven't made a decision about Cornet yet, he can respect that. But anyone that wants to cuss him out or flip him off again, it's not fuck me, it's fuck you. Jim, then finally he asks the Briscoes to enter the ring. He calls them one of the finest tag teams today. And says after last night, they also have a problem with Homicide. Um, tonight they have a match against Davey Richards and Homicide. He says he has no problem with Davey Richards, but if they need to hurt Davey in this match, hurt them. But when it comes to Homicide, he tells the Briscoes to do whatever they can to hurt Homicide, saying they won't get fired or suspended. They can do whatever they want. He, Jim's not, not going to punish them for it. He says he says the Briscoes, he asks the Briscoes to give a hell yeah, they do. Jim announces the match is starting right now, and he just tells them, have fun. And uh, yeah, I have some thoughts about this promo, but I've talked so long recapping, Matt, you should definitely get to talk first. I'll just note, I was going to ask you, Matt, I think this might have been the longest promo we've ever seen through the years. This might be the longest promo in Ring of Honor history. This was a 17-minute in-ring promo. It's very funny because I... Uh you know, when he said at the beginning, I just need like 10 minutes of your time. I'm like, 10 minutes. That's an exaggeration of how long this promo is going to be. And then I was like, Oh, no, wait. It was longer. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, first of all, second basically match in a row where there's like a heel manager type who's like, Yeah, my guys, I want you to hurt this other person. Um, of course, only one of those matches actually involved an injury angle, but I thought that was interesting framing. Um, you know, I've been fairly critical of a lot of the promos that Cornette cut during the CZW feud just because just I thought they were tonally off. But, like, objectively, they were all excellent promos. You know, like, he was he did a great job. Jim Cornette's one of the great promos of all time, and his delivery was great. His intensity was great. I thought this promo was actually, like, a bad promo. I, I thought that it was... It meandered. It was too long. He spent a lot of time just recapping stuff that you could just watch on video for like no reason. And I thought the whole framing of like, well, I'm not going to be a heel manager. Like it was too much considering that it was basically had all the trapping. I mean, heel commissioner. I mean, it basically had all the trappings of being a heel commissioner. Like, yeah, I'm only going to, you know, feud with the guys I'm feuding with. But also if you say anything against me, I hate you. Like it's like, um, I, I I just I just thought it was totally unnecessary and very uncreative coming from a guy who was always even when I didn't always love what he was saying a creative and dynamic promo. So I thought this was a a pretty big swing and a miss for uh, for Jim Cornette and for the storyline, which I thought had already lost a lot of momentum. And I think this uh, this really did not help. I thought this was like a lot of Jim Cornette Ring of Honor stuff where it was really well performed in some respects, but it felt a little out of sync with the promotion and its fan base. Like 
I find Cornette is excellent at recapping the events of the last few months. Like he, he, he does like, oh, I really appreciated him when he was doing that segment of the promo, because I think a lot of people, when they have to recap things in storyline and wrestling, there are people that are really good quote unquote wrestling actors. Like there's a certain kind of acting skill for wrestling, but I feel like a fairly rare skill in wrestling is like, getting across certain bullet points that you need to get across that you've probably been told to get across without seeing robotic. Like I think Cornette's really good here about like actually it doesn't feel like he's just reeling off. Like I have to remind you of this and this and this, it feels like he's really taking you through it and he's acting emotionally to the each one. And he's giving observations about them. And so I like that, but it's, and you know he he's he's got a great delivery, but the substance is what's the problem here. Like first off, the whole bit about how he wasn't going to become a heel commissioner, and he and Ring of Honor are too smart for that. That felt like a little. Did that didn't? If it, are you like me? Like that felt both like a little too fourth wall breaking and a little too like self congratulatory. Like you well, know, Ring of Honor. Self, like yeah, self congratulatory because it was. I mean, they didn't they didn't do anything differently. Like this is exactly what Vince McMahon was at the beginning too, as far as being a heel. You know. It just was a weird thing to frame, like to start off where he's like, I've heard people say that we're going to do the heel commission thing. We're not going to do that. Or don't you think we're better than that? And it's like, do, did this really need to be part of a 17? You could have cut this part where you, where you, where you kind of browbeat people for uh, daring to think that there might be a heel commissioner storyline, which you're, you, by the way, you're kind of doing anyway. Kind of. Um, <laughs> I think he's trying to walk a line. Um, uh, no, no, it's the disingenuous line walk because he immediately just becomes a heel. I mean, he's trying to be a I, I think he's legitimately trying to be a heel commissioner for one wrestler, which is like maybe, an interesting maybe on, thing. Maybe on, maybe on this night, that's true. It doesn't, I mean, by the time we get to New York, he sure is shitting on the crowd and like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. which is two shows later. Um, yeah. And I, I, I like, I I feel like the, the the I mean I don't know if they knew that Cornette was not long for Ring of Honor at this point, but with us with the benefit of hindsight, the fact that they're trying even for this one night trying to like w- spend all this trouble trying to walk this line and have this subtlety of like hey you know he's trying to suck up the fans still a little bit you know I've been in Chicago twenty years and you know all the fans that were cheering me you know I still appreciate you and I'm not going after any other wrestler and all this stuff like it feels like so much work for something that's not going to have any payoff. Like it would have been so much better just to go full unapologetic heel, you you know, rather than do spend all this energy trying to toe this line because somehow you're afraid of being a heel, a full heel commissioner. You think somehow this is going to be better. In fact, like I've said before, Matt, I I feel like shades of gray and wrestling is a little overrated. Like sometimes it can work, but I think wrestling is, generally better at its best when it's like big bold heroes and big bold villains and very clear black and white. But, but if we look at like the success, I was thinking when I was watching this, if we think about like the successes of wrestling that were the anti-hero that were like the gray area, it's people that are doing shitty heelish things, but they're so entertaining and so cool do- doing them that the fans cheer them. So it'd be like Steve Austin or the NWO, right? Like they're doing bad things, but they're also being doing entertaining things where Cornette here is, he's like the opposite he's like an anti-villain instead of anti-hero like in theory he's justified in doing everything he's doing you know he lays out a justification but the things he's doing aren't things that fans are going to want to see or cheer for like he's guilt tripping the fans you know like after all, all i've done for ring of Honor, look at all these things like he's guilt tripping them like he's my mom um he, he's trying to run homicide one of the most beloved wrestlers in the company out of the company um he's preventing low-key in storyline another 
person the the fans love from returning to the company like so even if he's laying out all these justifications of why you know i'm in my rights to do this the crowd's still not going to want to cheer you because you're doing things they don't want to see yeah although i I, I do think you're overthinking it a little bit because i really do think that he was just being a heel who's being disingenuous about not being a heel I mean, I can say this promo, like Jim must have been talking or Gabe, because like I didn't include this, but like there were notes in like the Observer weeks before this, that like they're telling people that this promo Jim Cornette cuts is not going to be what people think it is. Like they were really building this up as like you know it's not going to be the heel promo. You know he's going to shock you. He's got something different to say. And which again, I would say whether I'm whether you're right that this was meant to be super disingenuous or me thinking that they were trying to walk the line and then pivoted either way i think it goes back to my main point which is it's a lot of work for something that doesn't pay off right like yeah i mean i just i just thought it was boring i thought it was a boring ass promo (laughs) like that was my opinion of it yeah and i think it comes across when you watch like when you listen to the reactions the fact that he's kind of swimming against the current here because you get like the crowd cheers him a little bit when he says things that should be getting cheers and they boom a little bit but really it's a far more mute reaction than most of his promos get because again he's kind of like swimming against the current you know he's kind of being saying some things that they want to cheer but he's kind of being a dick and it's like it's just it it's it, he's overcomplicating it and i also i also wanna, I, I also i also by the way think this is just too long after the uh, action for it to really be effective. This is again, like a month and a half later, which, you know, even if we were watching it in real time, like that's a long time to cut a follow-up promo on a big angle. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to overstate how logical his arguments even are, because we've talked about this before. The idea that low key, like he's, he, he could never bring low key back because low key threw a chair that accidentally hit Jim Cornette and knocked out his two. And that's the unforgivable sin. That's like a ridiculous thing. I do give credit. They did finally bring in some of the reality here. Like they had Cornette kind of be a bit of a Gabe surrogate when he started talking about like, you don't know how hard it is for this to work with this guy. Like that definitely holds more weight because that's more based in reality. It and also, the, it also the, feels very relevant to like the wrestling scene of now. So listeners today can be like, Oh, I kind of, understand that whole concept <laughs> um you're saying tony khan should have gone out there and been like look chicago I mean, and it's also chicago what a coincidence tony khan should have been like look chicago i don't have a problem with any of you it's yeah this I'm not, one I'm not, guy I'm not, by the way i'm not taking a side on that i mean like it's just more like you know that's like in the zeitgeist that whole concept yeah and then Cornet saying again, he's done this whole thing where it's like, look, I promised Thomas I three wishes, but I didn't promise wishes for some, but for his friends. It's like, what kind of busted ass genie is that? Like a genie, when it gives you three wishes, it's supposed to be three wishes. He's not going to say, oh, you want your mom to get a nice house. I can't. I, I said three wishes for you. you, know, you I could give you a house and you could gift it to your mom. Like that's not how wishes work, Cornet. How dare you? And um, then I, I think my last point was so I, I already. I already you know, like you did not enjoy this promo. I, 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 again, I admired certain parts of his delivery, but yeah, I thought it was a major misfire. But then Dave Meltzer, the observer brought something up that completely makes this promo just from bad to just the giant misfire. I, like I completely forgot. Um, Dave from the observer, Jim Cornette did a 17 minute interview, basically saying he was not, not turning heel commissioner. He said how the internet has said he's playing heel commissioner, but that he missed the TNA pay-per-view to come to the cage of death show. He said he turned down, bring back low 
low-key and the fans don't understand dealing with low-key on a business basis. This, of course, would have made more sense if Cornette wasn't playing head authority figure in TNA where low-key was currently was, – was champion. <laughs> and I, I looked it up and I realized he, he was fucking sentient head. was like the ex-champion. Wow. Like, yeah. Like, like, and when you hear that, like Jim Cornette's the master of, you know, people always – Pointed out, like especially in like OVW and stuff, he would go to huge lengths to like make his booking make sense. Like if someone was like, you know, booked in OV from OVW in WWE, and they he like he would go out of his way to go, well, why their character was different here is because of something. Like, and the fact that he's doing this whole promo about how I can't bring Loki back, you know, you'll never see him Ring of Honor again when he's the commissioner of another company that Loki's champion in. Like for Jim Cornette, you would think he would be aware, like. Holy shit! Like, well, how, well, well. How here's the here, here's the explanation. Senchi and Loki, two different people. <laughs> I mean, like, 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 like that is, and, and, and even again, like, think of the other thing too, which is homicide. And he mentioned that in the promo homicides in TNA. So it's like, why is he trying to run homicide out of TNA? Like, yeah, none of this works. Yeah. So um, I will say, I will say this: though. if we if, the- we if we gave titles to our episodes. I would call this one "busted ass genie," which is one of your greatest lines of all time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's right. So I will say, like, not a good promo. It is. I will say, it is a good curiosity. Like, if you want to see like one of the most wrong-headed, like, n- misguided, just complete misfire of a promo, one of the greatest promo guys in wrestling history has ever had it might be this show so um there's i mean it has that historical value going for it but matt what doesn't really have historical value but maybe doesn't have entertainment value the briscoes defeated davy richards and homicide in 19 minutes and 46 seconds when mark pinned davy after a springboard doomsday device what'd you think about this match um okay well this was definitely better than the promo um i'll say that um uh, by the way, one line that I did want to mention from the promo that I, we, we glossed over that I thought was funny was when um, um, Cornette said, homicide committed career suicide. That one's a thinker. Um, but <laughs> see, you thought about it. Um, but um, as far as the match, yeah. So it's funny. Like, So obviously like it was weird that homicide just waited back stage that whole promo with this guy he hated obviously that's why the briscoes were there were to like give an explanation for why homicide didn't just charge the ring but still like he did eventually just charge the ring anyway so i uh you know you'd think that he wouldn't be so polite to wait for cornet to be done with the promo but you know he he charges the ring gets booted down by the briscoes and then richards runs out to even the odds and yeah it starts off again not particularly heated again i think that this this um, this feud lost a lot of momentum, this Cornette homicide thing. And homicide doesn't really feel like the main eventer he felt like after uh, Cage of Death here. But the work is pretty good early on, eventually. You know, especially the Briscoes, all their offense always looks good. You know, one of the highlights of the early period is uh, Mark Briscoe hitting a very nice looking bridging German, a uh, bridging Northern Light suplex. I mean, um, also at one point early, Mark goes for a superplex, but Homicide hits a super inverted atomic drop all the way from the top rope, which I would think um, would really be sold a lot, <laughs> and it really wasn't. I mean, Homicide does take the opportunity to tag in Davey, but you would—I mean—that's a move that should be sold a lot—a uh, top rope inverted atomic drop, and it just—it just was a total transition move. Um, 
But for a while, the Briscoes work over Richards. They hit their awesome, as always, double shoulder tackle on him. They start attacking his leg. Um, Mark dives and knocks Homicide off the apron as Davey's about to go for a hot tag. Uh, For the second night in a row, we get a three-arm drop spot on a chin lock, which I always find weird. And um, Davey eventually uses that spot to fire up, but Mark just cuts him off again with a a leaping knee. Um, Eventually... um, Richards does come back with a uh, STO on Mark and does a reversal on Jay and tags in Homicide. And the crowd is not really up for the hot tag, but Homicide does do a good job doing classic hot tag spots, backdrops, and what have you. Um, There's one point where Jay Briscoe does a backslide to Homicide, and Homicide just rolls through and yells, Fuck you! and hits a pile driver, which I thought was a cool spot. He also uh, hits a superplex and rolls through into a T-bone suplex on Mark, and Jay breaks up the pin on that. Um, and there was even there was also a spot where uh, Homicide went for a spinning DDT, but Jay spun him all the way around, put him back on the top rope, went for a superplex. Homicide blocked that, hit a top rope DVD, but he couldn't get the cover because uh, Jay wasn't legal. Um, at that point, uh, Davey blind tags, um, and we get a lot of like, high-level offense at that point. Uh, Davey hits Mark with the power bomb and the horse collar, and the crowd is now finally into it. Um, he goes, uh, Richards goes for the butterfly, butterfly brain buster, but Mark blocks that and drops Richards' neck first on the top rope. Um, Richards avoids a suplex, and Homicide knocks Jay off the top rope to the floor. Then Richards hits a tombstone on Mark, and then Homicide immediately comes off the top with a splash, which gets a good near fall. Um, Jay drop, uh, drags Homicide to the outside, so Mark is left with Richards. Um, he again blocks a butterfly brain buster, but Richards hits a Saito suplex. Then Jay comes in with a sudden boot to Richards' face. Then he goes back on the top rope, but Homicide catches him again, hits a top rope ace crusher. Then he goes for the lariat, but Mark catches him, hits an exploder. And then Richards hits Mark with the handspring kick. And then does a leg capture suplex on Jay, and Jay pops up, and he and Richards hit a double clothesline, and we have our classic, all four guys are down spot, and the crowd is definitely awake now, really for the first time in a long time. They're like way into it. Homicide goes for the cop killer. Mark avoids that. Homicide spears Mark against the ropes and flies to the outside, which I think was probably supposed to be a miss on that spear. But anyway, he goes to the outside. The Briscoes go for a springboard doomsday device, but Richards knocks Mark off the top rope. He goes to pin Jay, but Jay isn't legal, and then pins Mark for two. Uh, Richards goes for the butterfly brain buster on Jay, but Jay blocks it, just lifts Davey back up, and they hit the springboard doomsday for the win. I thought that was kind of an awkward, sudden finish, like just like, he just like all of a sudden just did the move. Like it wasn't like he did any sort of like reversal or anything. But I thought the match ended up being really good. The the first part was a little bit heatless, but I thought that the it was just like a solid like ROH style tag match, and they they really turned it on after the Richards hot tag. And I thought the Richards, you know, I thought the Richards keeps bringing it every time he shows up during his like first couple months here, and the Briscoes do too. I thought Homicide was actually the weakest part of the match. Um, but they woke up a weak crowd, and I, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought this was a, a good, a quite good match. Yeah, I, I feel like we're into the era of Briscoe tags at this point, where they have this era where their matches are like incredibly high work ethic, and they do a lot 
lot of stuff really well, like really mechanically well, but they often, they don't have like a lot of intangibles or stories, just stuff. They, they rarely take a break. It's move after move. It's all executed really well. It doesn't quite feel like it's building to be bigger than the sum of its parts. And I feel like this is another one of those matches. Like they take a lot of the offense here. In particular, there, there's like this long David Richards face in peril sequence, but it's not until the final minutes. I felt like where all four, four guys are in and they're doing the usual like late match. We're going to go do hit our biggest stuff and go for broke that the crowd really gets into it. Cause like you said, I noticed during this match, like the crowd is shockingly dead for a lot of this match. That's like a pretty action filled match with, with, you know, homicide when the big stars in the coming, the Briscoes are pretty beloved too. David Richards was a hot prospect. People that had, you know, maybe not seen him in Chicago, but was getting buzz and you watch this match and like, they'll pop for big moves and they'll clap briefly when a face needs someone. To, like needs to get out of a hold, but there are moments before the final stretch run of this run of this match where you could hear like a freaking pin drop. And I was like, I can't recall a match with these kinds of guys in this action, like getting this little bit of reaction. And another other thing I didn't like about this match, what or that was at least jarring to me, was this was like probably the 140th time that where Ring of Honor decided that tags matter because at least three times in this match, uh, the ref Todd Sinclair has to tell someone that they're not covering the legal man. And it ruins, like if you talk about like the awkwardness of the end, it really made the end awkward because there's a moment late where the Briscoes are going to do the doomsday device to, um, the, uh, Davy Richards and Davy counters and he goes for like the flash pin on one of the Briscoes and the ref has to tell him, you know, it's not the right guy. And so Davy just walks over to the legal Briscoe and then covers them for a near fall. But like, it's not a flash pin anymore. <laughs> like it, it's like not a surprise, like all the dramas out of it. And it was just one of those things where why does like, we've talked about this so many times before, pick a decision and stick with either tags matter all the time, very strictly, or just ignore them. Either option's fine, but just pick one. Like it's so annoying that they keep going back and forth on this with um, maybe just when Jim Cornette or Ricky Steamboy, they feel like, Oh shit, we can't make dad angry. So then they pay attention <laughs> to it. And then when he's gone, they forget because really why else is it back now for this match? But, um, but overall, again, I did agree. I thought this was like a good match. It was, you know, like a decently good. There was, there was action. Everyone worked hard. The final couple of minutes were big and exciting. But I will say I was disappointed with just good considering who was in this match. Cause think about like, this wasn't close to either of the Briscoe's tags in the UK, right? And one of those Briscoe's tags is the Briscoe's versus Davy Richards and Matt Seidel. So you had three fourths of that match is here. And, and, I they, that and they, were the three, of, they were the three strongest participants in the match. And do you agree with that, that Homicide was sort of the weak link here? I will, but I don't, don't think Homicide's performance here dragged the match no, down. Yeah, he wasn't bad or anything, but like, I don't think he was really keeping up with what the other guys were doing. I will say this match kind of had similar... I have similar nitpicks for this match as I did that Briscoe's Davy Seidel match, but that match was better because the end, the the stretch, the the final stretch of that match was so long and so good to me that just like redeemed anything that I kind of quibbled with it earlier. Where this match, it's not nearly as long or as good that that exciting final stretch. I will tell you what I think my favorite part of this match is, Matt, which is okay. It's a two part thing. First off, at one point, Homicide throws his bandana at Todd Sinclair. Claire over a near fall like he's mad that the near fall didn't go his way and I wrote my notes is it just me or does it make a su- surprisingly loud slapping sound like it doesn't sound like a piece of cloth like you can hear like a slap when it hits him so anyway 
this that sets up the moment I like. It's just a little dumb moment. But I like later on. Um, the ref does a, a five count to Mark Briscoe because he's choking homicide in the corner, and Mark he, t- yells at Todd Sinclair. Goes, but he threw his bandana at you, and the crowd starts laughing. Like he's trying to say, like you should be okay with this. He threw his bandana at you. I just love that. That was so Mark being just in the moment. I, I, I love little things like that. I thought it was very cute. And um, um. After the match, uh, the Briscoes leave. The crowd gives Homicide a nice chant. And then Homicide, in a very gracious, very babyface thing for the normally kind of cranky anti-hero Homicide character, he, like, points to Davy Richards and, like, prompts the crowd basically to give Davy a chant and gives him the spotlight, which they do. And then they fist tap despite the loss. And Homicide then leaves. And he has a bleeding mouth during the match. So he, we had our big in-depth conversation, I think, on the last show, Matt. Would you use the toilet paper that the fans threw? Homicide would be a yes to that. Because he takes, like, a random roll of toilet paper that's on, like, the floor of the building and uses it to, like, sop up the blood from his mouth. So, Homicide, Which, we yeah, use that toilet yeah, paper. Yeah, I mean, that's like, a, you know, you're, you're putting it on, you're putting whatever germs there on an open wound and yes. putting it in your mouth. So it's like, you get, you get all the possible uh, vectors of infection. These wrestlers, not they're risk takers of the highest order. That's but right. um, next, it's intermission. We join Dave Prezak backstage. He has an update on BJ Wimmer, who he says has a severe ankle injury and is being taken to the hospital. An ecstatic Jimmy Jacobs walks in at that point. He says he did that. He did it for Lacey. He did it for the power of love. He says the sins of the flesh go down to the adoration of the heart. He starts to sing, love, lift us up where we belong. I, If you can tell, I was going to start to try and say that, and then I thought better of it. So you, I, mean, I, mean, if, if, I mean, if you really want me to, Trevor. <laughs> Matt, I, 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 I would do a lot of things for your love, but I won't do that. And um, okay. So anyway, uh, but, Jimmy but, just but, walks. But, but wait, I, uh, this, uh, him singing that little bit of that chorus did send me into a little bit of a Wikipedia wormhole where I started to look up information about Jennifer Warnes, who was on the duet of that song with Joe Cocker. Um, and I found out some interesting stuff that I did not know about her. For instance, quote, in 1985, she recorded a duet with, version with BJ Thomas of the song, As Long As We Got Each Other, the theme for the TV show Growing Pains, if you remember that song. You know, as long as we got each other, do, 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 we got the world spinning right in our hand. So anyway, um, so it was used as the opening theme for the second and third seasons. And for the fourth season, the song was once again re-recorded with Thomas and Dusty Springfield. Trevor, did you know that Dusty Springfield was singing the theme song to Growing Pains on the fourth season? Matt, I did not expect... For us to be talking about Dusty and BJ on the show in a completely different Dusty and BJ. That's right. You well, that, you, you have shocked me. That's very clever. But, um, but did you? Isn't the big thing about Growing Pains too? Like I don't think I no. I definitely did not. Know. That stuff's crazy. But also, isn't the big thing like the thing that people always say about the Growing Pains theme is like, did you know Alan Thicke wrote the theme? Like, isn't that he, a thing too? Well, like, he wrote. He wrote, well, theme he, songs? he wrote. He wrote themes for other shows too. And yeah. I'm pretty sure he sang the Different Strokes theme song. Um, but. Um, but so there, there's more trivia for you. But here's this. But Dusty Springfield, that's like a big deal to get to sing your your sitcom theme. Like that's 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 pretty that's a pretty big get, I think. Um, that was right around the era where she also did her famous duet with the Pet Shop Boys, right? 
What have I done? I, to I love that this? they kept re-recording the theme too. Like yeah. it wasn't good enough for it. Like he was like, "We could do this better. We could get a bigger name." Like, well, we, that, that we was like this. that was like the peak era of like putting effort into sitcom theme songs, right? I mean, so many classics from from that. Era. I mean, the Cheers theme. Come on, um, but um, so so anyway, after that fourth season. Uh, one that had Dusty Springfield. Then Jennifer Warnes made her return for the fifth season, that that version, and, and the seventh final season of the show. Doesn't say anything about the sixth season, so now I got to go back and figure out who was singing that one. But here's this. Okay, so not only did she sing "Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong," not only was she uh, on the Growing Pains theme, but the same year she recorded vocals for Leonard Cohen's record, Various Positions, getting equal vocal credits with Cohen in the Inside Booklet. Trevor, that's the album that has the original version of Hallelujah on it, um, and she's getting equal vocal credits to Leonard Cohen while also singing the Growing Pains theme, which is, I mean, that's a surprising combination of accomplishments in one year. Um, and the last thing in this paragraph, it says, after releasing a praise tribute LP of Leonard Cohen's songs in 1987, Famous Blue Raincoat, to which Cohen contributed two new compositions, First We Take Manhattan, which featured Stevie Ray Vaughan on guitar and Ain't No Cure for Love, she contributed vocals to no- Cohen's 1988 hit LP, I'm Your Man, most notably to Take This Waltz and Tower Song. So all of these things that Jennifer Warnes did... And also, you know, working with doing, get, recording some legendary stuff with Leonard Cohen. I, I, I could tell you, Trevor, I would not have expected the, um, the person on the sappy, um, pop soft rock hit, Love Lift Up Stuff Where We Belong, also was on the Growing Pains theme and also on some pretty famous and well regarded Leonard Cohen recordings. Trevor, you have the floor. You fell down a Wikipedia hole, sir, as I have many times. That was interesting to say the least, especially because now – you know what that got me thinking? Now now you've got me going down an hour – not a um, a Leonard Cohen mental. I started thinking like it combined everything. I started thinking, I wonder if Leonard Cohen's ever watched wrestling. Would he, what era would he be on? Like I started thinking about that, so now I'm caught. And then I, I had probably to some Probably something in Canada in like the early 50s or something. <laughs> he saw Andre the Giant front row before he was Andre the Giant. But no, um, I'm, I'm getting, some, if, if he saw Whipper Billy Watson, that that would be the best that we could possibly ask for. So I, I was looking up um, uh, theme songs that Alan Thicke wrote, and obviously the big ones would be like Different Strokes, The Facts of Life, Wheel of Fortune. But there was one called Animal Crackups, and I feel like that's what I'm going to be doing <laughs> after the show. Is look up, and also a, a show that has either as a cartoon or just has a cartoon opening called Woo, as in W H E W exclamation point. So yeah. that's going to be my night after this. That's how I spend my weekends, Matt. Well, Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I'll be alone, but I'll be with Woo. Well, I have one left. One thing left to say about all of this. Show me that smile again. Don't waste another minute on your crying. We know we need. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Matt, you are a braver man and a better singer, probably. Uh, if I'm a better singer than you, then you got some problems. I am terrible. I am absolutely terrible. Um, in fact, one my um, I remember. Okay, this is the last thing before we finally get back on the show. This has been a weird episode, folks. Um. I, I, my dad's family is very musical, and my mom's side of the family has no musical talent whatsoever. And um, 
I joined like a choir when I was a kid because I was told there was a Sunday bar at the end of the choir and that's the only reason. And then I tried to quit when I realized that would have meant I had to spend my entire like school year going to choir and during my lunch hour. But anyway, um, I went to choir, performed in front of the mall. My dad was there and uh, I was like, how do I do that? And he just said, oh, why did you have to take after your mom? Oh, man. And so I knew <laughs> I was not a good singer. I was like, oh. Oh, this is, uh, I guess I won't be going back to choir this ever again. Uh, hope that Sunday's good. But anyway. Trevor has a um, very honest family. From one disappointment to another, Samoa Joe defeated Claudio Castagnoli via pinfall in 14 minutes, 32 seconds after he hit the muscle buster. Uh, that's me being a little hard for the purposes of a smooth transition. Uh, this is actually a little bit better, I found that, than their, um, the previous match these two had against each other in Ring of Honor, but that's not saying much because I think that was one of – I think we agree that's one of like the biggest letdowns we've ever had in through the year's history, their first one against each other. This match, So I would say this match is an improvement. It's not a gigantic improvement, and I think it comes down to like two themes these guys have been carrying for months on through the years, which is Claudio has often been disappointed in singles matches since he turned heel, and Samoa Joe has been transitioning at this point to a guy in Ring of Honor who – kind of picks his spots as when he's going to go 100%. And I felt like this match is a good example, another good example of Joe on autopilot. He, you know, he does a decent effort here. He, I, and I do kind of feel guilty, like, talking him down in that sense, because I feel like Joe on autopilot is still pretty good. Like, think about, like, this is why we could all, all like, a typical Samoa Joe match. And then I realized a typical Samoa Joe match in this era still has him doing, like, the big elbow to- tope suicida to the floor, doing the big jumping enzigiri. Like, those are big athletic spots for a guy Joe's size, and those spots are just, like, expected, like, come standard. Like, even in a match where you go, oh, Joe's working at, like, 70%. Like, we still expect them to do those spots, and he still does them. So, like, that, that kind of shows, like, the standard Joe is set for himself. But I would just say why it's Joe on autopilot, because, like, you're not seeing a lot of brain power or invention from Joe here. Like, he dominates Claudio early. He gives Claudio the middle of the match. Then he comes back at the end for the win. He hits mostly everything he does here is just, like, normal signature spots you'd expect him to do. I would say, like, his performance here is, like, a big rock band that, like, they play all their hits, but they don't play anything else. Like, they play, like, the ten songs you would have to play or else the the crowd would get mad and go, you, you have to play that song. But they don't play deep cuts. They don't do a big encore. You know, they're not going two hours. They're giving you a tight 70 minutes. They're playing their 10 hits and then they're saying good night. And you're like, well, that was enough. What band, and, is, and what band talk- are you subtweeting here, Trevor? <laughs> I feel like um, – like we would maybe appreciate, or I would appreciate those Samo- these Samoa Joe matches if we weren't watching every single match he's ever had done in the company in order. Because we've seen a lot of this now, right? Claudio, meanwhile, I would say he, like he keeps his trend going too. On the plus side, he really has grown into like an exquisite ham at this point. You can actually hear him not just pop the crowd, but like Dave Prezak on commentary, who usually, you know, post-production isn't like reacting like super like he's getting surprised by things. But like you can hear Prezak pop for some of his facial expressions he's really being like a human loony tune like er, right at the start of the match um joe just no sells claudio's offense and um claudio just kind of freezes and then caresses joe's face and tries to walk away from like 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 total wily coyote you know and kind of cartoonish stuff which i enjoyed in fact in some ways i enjoyed the early bits of the match the most even though it was like the part of the match with the least action just because it was the part of the match that felt unique where it was Joe being super dumb, just completely destroying Claudio, and Claudio being so over the top that at least made it somewhat memorable. 
And then from there, you get like Claudio doing kind of like the stuff he's been doing of late, which is like the 80s heel, heel boilerplate heel stuff like chin locks, raking the eyes on the ropes, very measured pace, which isn't always bad, but Claudio is such a great athlete. You're kind of like, oh, this is, you're kind of putting the brakes on a guy on a Ferrari here. But I will say, he did do Matt. He did like do a lot of his physical like lifting moves to Joe. Like he he did the Apomari water slide on Joe, which was really cool. He almost he, he almost um, lost him on that spinny face plant thing, though. Yeah, yeah, that was the one thing where it's like, oh, you bit off more than you can chew. Like he barely got him off off the ground, and Joe kind of took like an awkward bump on on his side. But you know, he did you know lift him up a bit. He did he hit a Samoan drop on Samoa Joe, which I appreciate on multiple levels. Um. So yeah, that that was the match. I have another thought about the booking, but Matt, what do you think about the match? Am I being too hard on it, or? I mean, I you know I was I might have even been the low vote on their first match. Like I thought it was pretty bad. Um, the one at um Weekend of Champions, but I, I I think I did like this one a pretty decent bit more than you did. I I think it's probably like equivalent in the inverse of you and me on the uh, Whitmer and Jacobs match. I, I thought this was a like a solid match, and I wasn't disappointed because their first match kind of sucked and uh so i didn't have super high hopes i um you know i'm still kind of find it weird to watch claudio be the you know chicken shit goofball heel like you know that's kind of being dominated by the big guy because just because of the persona we've seen him in for so many years as being the tough big guy you know like it's it's weird to see that that role reversal you know Especially in Ring of Honor, where he's like legit one of the most muscular, tallest guys in the promotion. Right. You know, and like obviously Joe would be the the big man on campus, so to speak. Yeah. So it makes some sense there. Um, but I still, I just thought Joe looked like he was having a good time. Like they they did wrestle in a physical way. You know, wasn't their most creative or physical match? No. But you know, I I thought that they were working relatively hard for a match where they weren't going to work their hardest, you know? And I did also enjoy when Claudio uh, hit a Samoan drop and then yelled, look at the irony here, Uh, (laughs) you know, because he's hitting a Samoan drop on Samoa Joe instead of the other way around, you see. Um, So I I enjoyed that. Um, I thought Joe's ole-ole kicks were like, Above average, I thought Claudio hit a, a did a really nice bump after the second one, going all the way into the front row. There was also a weird moment where it seemed like Samoa Joe was walking around telling the members, almost entirely male members of the front row, to lift up their shirts, and I couldn't figure out what <laughs> what he was doing or why. But he does hit a third ole ole kick. Um, so if anyone knows why he was telling everyone to lift up their shirts, uh, let me know. I mean, not, you know, I, I don't know, but he, he seemed to be doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I Samoa th- Joe has been canceled, Matt. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Um, but they, um, but yeah, I thought they worked hard and had a good match that I think got the best crowd reactions from beginning to end of the night so far, just in terms of like consistency. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought this was a, a good solid match. So the part I was going to talk about, and I, I mean, I did think of this was a little bit above average. I guess, again, I, I am always a little let down because I have high expectations for these guys. But um, I, I have a feeling like they – like I have a feeling you'll agree on this. If these guys wrestle AEW today, it would be way better than either of these matches they've had here, right? Like, I mean, pro- I, I can't pro- not probably. Better. I mean, I think it would be more athletic and it would be faster. Um, it would certainly be better than the first one. But you never know. I mean, there's all kinds of shenanigans and stuff. So I, uh, so yeah, who knows? I mean, I think they would probably 
want to prove something. So probably, but I, I wouldn't say that I would bet a lot of money that it would be much better than this match, for example. I definitely could be, but I wouldn't say definitely either. So the booking I think I wanted to mention was a um, – I was thinking this match, oh, this is like this weekend has been like another classic example of, of Gabe booking because something I always like to point out, which was like a trope Gabe did, which was – if you knew he was going to push a guy or give them some big win or, or or even just like a character change and a refresh, he would really job them out before that. Cause he'd be like, Oh, um, you know, this thing they're getting is going to, it won't matter that they lost a bunch first. So I can, I can give, have them put over some other people. And a lot of times he was right in that thing. So I was thinking, Oh, this is an example of that. Cause look this week, this double shot, he lost the, um, Daniels, and then the next night he loses to Joe, and then I thought, well, he had also just lost to Whitmer. So I thought, well, how many losses has he had recently? So I looked it up, Matt. Do you know how many singles matches Claudio had lost in a row at Ring of Honor up to this point? Oh, geez. No, I haven't been keeping track. He lost, he has lost at this, uh, counting this match, his last nine consecutive singles matches in Ring of Honor. Wow. Including all eight after he turned heel. Wow. And in fact, I think he's only had three wins since the Hilter, and they were all in tag matches, but he lost every single singles match nine in a row. It's impressive impressive that he was as over as he was, given that. Yeah, so it is really wild that, like, you know, we talk about, like, booking these days, and maybe we don't analyze this booking as much because, like, the match, our shows are so spread out far apart, but, like, he's about to become tag team champion, and he's getting, like, he's losing everywhere you turn, and, and but that, again, that was kind of Gabe's booking sometimes. Um, and this was also, this was one of a, a couple of things tonight where there's, like, there's been happening recently on Ring of Honor shows we've been covering, which is, like, promos that build up future matches that do not make the DVD. So this is from the Observer Report. Joe beat Castagnoli using the Muscle Buster. Post-match, Joe challenged Brian Danielson to a title match in Chicago on October 28th. He made reference to a 60-minute draw in Chicago in 2004 with CM Punk, which led to chance for Punk. Joe said that the crowd should leave Punk alone since he's now fighting vampires. Which, of course, for those who don't know the timeline, this was when Punk was um, in ECW, the the early WWE ECW, and they had like Kevin Thorne, the vampire gimmick. Remember all the crazy gimmicks, Matt? So, but none of that makes the DVD. <laughs> no challenge to a Danielson or anything. Um, that brings us to our next match: the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Titles were successfully defended when Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeated Christopher Daniels and Matt Seidel in 22 minutes three seconds. When Aries pinned Daniels after he hit the 450 splash. Um, Matt, what do you think about this? I mean, it's a, it's a, another tag match on the show. It's a, you know, tag wars, Matt. That's a different ring of our show. <laughs> I don't know where I was going, Matt. I, I am not, I am off today. My brain is, say, help me again. Come on. You're, you're, you're doing fine, Trevor. Um, but no, this is a, you're right. It is another tag match on the show. So what are you talking about? You're <laughs> off today. You were exactly right about this being a tag team match. That moves um, happened here. Yeah. I am. Um, I thought this is actually, Kind of in a kind of similar to the homicide and Richards against the Briscoes match, in that like it started out in you know with you know not having the most heat, and then like it built and built and built, and that final sequence really got the crowd fairly electric. But I thought it was better in each segment of that, like better at the beginning, better at the end. Um, this match actually had you know a more of psychology and story in the sense that Aries 
its ribs were targeted by Seidel and Daniels. And of course, it has the whole history with uh, Seidel continually trying to beat Ares and Strong with different partners and whatnot. Um, it was funny at the beginning because the crowd was chanting for everybody except for Daniels. So he got on the top rope and like pouted until they started chanting for him, which um, <laughs> probably didn't – probably I mean it couldn't have felt good. But uh, you know, Daniels has had enough chance in his day, so I feel like he could – he probably got over it fairly quickly. Um, there was another spot early where um, Ares came in to face Daniels and he points to a woman in the crowd and the woman just lets out a really high-pitched scream that gets a holy shit chant. So I don't know. That must be some sort of inside joke that I'm not privy to. I'm sure somebody who was there or knew the Chicago crowds could explain what that was all about. Um, you don't know, do you? No, I was going to just say not since Jeff Hardy showed up in Ring of Honor has Ring of Honor had a woman – this excited to see a wrestler like she was very loud yeah um it's funny because i was watching um the early part where strong and seidel were having kind of like their one-on-one sequence doing their like whole finesse and reversals and it it was weird because like i'm like i don't know do you agree like it sort of felt like seidel was like the young up-and-comer who was you know coming up against the you know the more grizzled older roderick strong but, you know, part of that was their size. Part of that was how long they've been pushed because, as you may know, Matt Seidel is actually a few months older than Roderick Strong. So, but doesn't, doesn't it feel like Seidel is like the plucky youngster compared to Roderick here? I feel like that Seidel fact you just gave, I must have known that, but it, it slipped my mind. But you know what? Maybe I didn't know because it's blowing my mind now that Matt Seidel is older than Roderick Strong. Yeah, only by, a few, only, by a few, only by a few months. They were both actually born the same year I was, but um, so they're both 40, but yeah. or, or, or about to be. Um, <laughs> hey. Um, but yeah, so, but, but yeah, like I think uh, Roderick's birthday is a, is a few months after. Uh, Matt's. So I, um, they, yeah, Roderick's older. Uh, I mean, I'm, str- I mean, Seidel's older. Um, but no, I, I agree with you. I think it's also because Seidel, I think, just fits kind of like a style that, that, like, like just stuff like Seidel's the kind of guy who he, he gets up so high on a back body drop. Like he will make a guy look like they're just like the vet that's beating the crap out of them, right? Like with his bumping and things like that. Yeah. Although I'm guessing if I watched him now, I wouldn't be like, oh, this, this, this plucky young kid, you know, like, so, you know, there is, there is some difference, but yeah, I think Roderick just gave the vibe. Um, but yeah, and so they, they, they do a good sequence with each other. You know, they're both great athletes. Um, there's one point where, um, Strong is working with Daniels and there's a chop chant, which is not a chant that you hear very often. Um, and so, Daniels smartly plays into it because when Strong does hit one chop, Daniels takes a bump off of it. Um, but, um, you know, the action early, it's not so dynamic, but it's definitely fast paced, lots of double team moves. Um, Strong slingshots Daniels into Aries' forearm on the apron. Aries hits that inside out elbow with Daniels over the knees. And then he goes for a frog splash, but Daniels gets his knees up and Aries lands rib first on him. So now they, uh, the, the challengers have the advantage. They're working on the ribs. You know, they do a lot of cool stuff. There's one spot where Seidel like drapes Aries over the bottom rope, like in the corner where he's like kind of just like lying on the, over the bottom rope. And Seidel does his thing where he does the, like the drop, the slingshot drop kick down onto Aries ribs, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, 
there was there's also a spot where like they they do the they do enough rib work and it gets over to the point where there's actually a big pop when Daniels locks in an abdominal stretch. So I think that's a sign that your limb work is working because abdominal stretch does not usually get a pop in most matches that I see. Um, there's also another cool spot where Seidel hits a slingshot drop kick to Aries ribs while Daniels has the abdominal stretch locked in. So they do a pretty good job with the rib work and, you know, it makes it easy for Aries to sell it because I think it's, it is a legitimate injury, right? Like we, we yeah. found out maybe it wasn't as bad as they thought at first, but it, he, he does have hurt ribs and, you know, he'll continue to wear the, the tape on the ribs for a while after this. Um, but you know they they keep going and they you know the the they work on the ribs and eventually Strong gets a hot tag and they do a whole lot of shit um which I'm not going to recap all of it but they do a pretty long sequence of big moves and reversals um you know hits on on the floor um I'll pick up late in the match and do some play-by-play. At one point, Seidel hits a top rope Rana, but Strong rolls through, hits a powerbomb backbreaker on Seidel, and Ares immediately hits a frog splash and gets a two-count, which was really awesome, and it actually gets a this-is-awesome chant. And then they hit a double-team backbreaker, but Seidel reverses a brainbuster attempt into a small package, which gets a two-count. Uh, then Daniels gets tagged in, hits an STO, but Aries fights back, They and uh, the champs hit a chop brainbuster combo on Daniels, get a two-count off that. Aries goes up top, and Daniels, Rana Strong, who goes to the outside, and then Seidel goes up to catch Aries up top, but Aries knocks him off, and then Seidel immediately leaps up into the Rana. Daniels hits the Uranagi, Seidel hits a standing moonsault on Aries, and Daniels then immediately hits the best moonsault ever. Strong breaks up that pin, and they all get a standing ovation and an ROH chant. Uh, Roderick chucks Seidel up and actually catches him in a body bag. So old throwback to um, was Slugger who did that move, right? Um, <laughs> and Seidel comes back with a, a big moonsault to, to, on Strong to the outside. Aries hits a drop kick to the head in the corner on Daniels. Daniels hits a sudden STO right into the Koji clutch. Meanwhile, on the outside, Strong presses Seidel rib first into the post outside. Daniels goes for an Angel's Wings, but Aries drops. Strong hits the big boot, the backbreaker, and Aries hits the 450 for the win. I thought it was very cool of Daniels to take the fall instead of Seidel here because he could have played the you know the big timer guy like oh, I'm I'm a push guy on TV, so I shouldn't be taking the fall. But he took it. Um, there were a couple of little botches, but I thought the closing stretch was one of the best yet for Aries and Strong. Not as good as the Briscoes one, but one of their better ones. Uh, the middle portion had a decent story with Aries' ribs. So I thought it was definitely the match of the night so far. Um, very good match, in my opinion. Yeah, I might have liked this even a little bit more than you. I thought like this was low level great. Like I would give this probably like a flat four stars. But I definitely, I and I definitely agree this was the best match of the night so far, and maybe. Don't know if I want to tip my hat. Maybe the best match of the whole show. But um, if I just describe this match in like the most general terms, I think you kind of were talking about this. It's not that much different than the Briscoe's match. Like it's long, lots of action, lots of just back and forth, change of flow. There, there's a bit more of a story here, like you mentioned, with the, the with the uh, working over Aries ribs. You get the big crazy finish. But I think what makes it different is one, I just think the action, particularly on the home stretch, is more exciting. I think the crowd's more into this match for the most part. They're by the end, they're into it as much as they've been into anything on the show. Um, 
And I also think the mood for this match, it just feels light, but like in a positive way, like not like they're not taking the match seriously, but just like, it just feels like they're having a good time and they're in like a comfort zone. Like there's the stuff you mentioned, like Daniel's playfully pouting until the crowd cheers him or Aries pointing out like the screaming female fan, or even before the match starts, you can hear, um, Aries and Strong are talking to each other about like Seidel wrestling them again. And you can hear, um, Roddy say to Aries, he just likes getting his ass kicked. Cause like Aries is like, why does he keep wrestling us? And then, um, Seidel says something, says to them, it's about time I had something around my waist. You've got tape. I'll take the belt. So pointing at like Aries taped up ribs. I just thought they're being goofy. It's it, it, like, you know, they're having fun. And just the match, it felt like they were in like a real comfort zone, like real veteran performers in in a comfort zone with each other. And I also thought there were compared to like the Briscoe's match, I just felt like this match had little moments of invention. And you've mentioned them like all I like as I watch wrestling at like a lot of the same company, you know, you realize there's only so many moves wrestlers do. There's only so many stories to tell. And in a lot of matches, you're going to see a lot of the same stuff. I'm not asking for like completely new things, but just like a couple new spots were reacting to things at the moment. And I think this match gives you that where like you mentioned the, the thing like um you mentioned a bunch of them, but like I noticed the one where like you mentioned with Daniels having someone in, in an abdominal stretch and Seidel doing that big outside in drop kick to pinpoint right to the ribs, like just stuff like that. It's like, you don't see that in every match because not every match are they working on the ribs. You know, not every match is at a tag match where you can do that. And there was cool little things like that. There was a spot where Roderick and Seidel are doing a double knuckle lock and Roddy ends up like sitting on Seidel's arm. So they're pinned under his legs and then he just lets go and slap Seidel on the face. Like just stuff like that. It's neat little things you don't see in every match. And this match has a whole, but I don't know if a whole bunch has a good three quarter bunch of them. I would say in this match, little neat moments of invention or playing things up. Um, you know, there is that botch where Seidel and Daniels botch like that double team where it looks like, um, Daniels is going to a tilt a whirl into like almost like a tombstone that I guess Seidel is supposed to grab the head on and Seidel just completely whiffs on it. And so Daniels is left holding the guys like, oh, I guess I'll just have to slam them down on my own. And there is a moment I thought that was late, which was weird where, um, Strong hits Seidel with some move, and then he, Strong immediately rolls to the floor, and Seidel doesn't even sell for a second, and he just like runs to the top rope and then does a a a, a top rope dive onto uh, Strong. And it's like there was like zero selling and almost like zero transition, like to the point where if it hadn't been so uninterrupted camera break, I would have thought there was like an edit there. It was so jarring how like oh you did this move now I gotta do my move right now quick, but. How I would describe this match, I think, is uh, I'm not a drinker, but I've heard people describe like drinks sometimes and go, oh, this is easy to drink. And I go, what the hell does that mean? And I think I get it here where I would say like, you know, you, this is not the greatest match of your life. It's not going to be something in our match of the year contention. It's not going to be something that even really sticks in memories. But boy, I thought it was just easy to watch. Like it was pleasant the whole way through. It was like 22 minutes where every minute was enjoyable. It was fun action fun action from beginning to end. I felt like the wrestlers were having a good time. felt like the fans were having a good time. There's just like this lightness to it in, in a way. And I do think it was probably, I would say definitely the best Christopher Daniels ROH match since probably his match against Danielson in late 2005. I feel like one of the other, there might've only been one so far, other Daniel Seidel tags. He looked good in that too. Like maybe that's invigorated him a bit. I, I don't know. What was the, it, what was the, to see what, how they play out. What was the other Daniel Seidel tag? I have to look it up. Um, give me a sec, but 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I have a it, lot it, of it clearly slipped my memory because I I thought this was the first one. Um, I don't have a lot of memories of the Seidel um, Daniels tag run. I, I, I there's one spot in one match that's much later that I remember just because it was such a cool spot. But I really, in general, don't remember much about their tag run except oh they have um you know oh they won the tag titles together you know but. So that was my excellent version of stalling, which I am almost done now. All right, yeah. So their first match against each other was against Irish Airborne at Time to Man Up. Yeah, at yeah. Time to Man Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was their only other one so far, I think, yeah. This is the one that really like made me think, oh, yeah, they, they, they made, it was smart of them to put these two together as a tag champs later in the year. Ab- absolutely. Um and so this is also, I should mention, Seidel gets a bloody nose as the year of Generation Next members getting their noses busted open continues. We must be up to like four or five bloody noses from members of Generation Next in 2006 yeah. Ring of Honor. Like, at, at least. Yeah. Um, and then we also get another promo that does not make the DVD, which is interesting. Uh, Chris Vetter from the PW Torch Live Report wrote, Aries cut a promo after the match saying that they've beaten every tag team out there and have risen to icon status. Daniels grabbed the mic saying he didn't like the tone in Aries' voice. Don't let your success go to your head, Daniels said. They agreed to a match on October 28th. So like another promo to build up the October 28th show that they just for some reason decided to uh, not put on the DVD. Was the October what- 28th match a singles match or a rematch of this? I do not remember. I, but guess, um, we'll, guess we'll find out. <laughs> th- th- now that is a reason to stick around. On th- it's, it's a singles match, I believe. Yeah, because Matt Seidel's in a singles match on that show, so it's gotta be. Gotcha. Yeah, it's Daniel's Aries singles. Um. Anyway, next we get an ad for the FIP Heatstroke 06 Night 2 show. On the last RH DVD, they had an ad for Night 1, and I noted on that one how the highlight video was mostly just Brian Danielson arguing with fans. This video is nothing but a few seconds of every single ring wrestler's ring entrance with no action at all, which I was like, that is a weird choice to make to like hype up, hey, do you want to buy this DVD? But to me, I guess that <laughs> was kind of the pitch of, of a lot of FIP ROH fans, which was basically hey do you like ring of honor wrestlers they're also here sometimes like well that's better that's better than those uh, montage videos in the early roh dvds that had everyone's entrance and also gave away all the finishes <laughs> <laughs> that were aired that aired right at the beginning of the dvd <laughs> oh god those were great we had um, so much more stuff to make fun of back in those days yeah the shows were so were so much funnier <laughs> yeah <laughs> Now the fun is more just how awkward I get or you taking us down a sitcom lane and doing a beautiful singing performance. It's only going to grow in appreciation as more people listen to it. But ROH World – it's the main event, the Ring of Honor World Title Best 2 out of 3 Falls match. Brian Danielson and Colt Cabana go to a 60-minute time limit draw tied at one fall apiece. The falls would be Colt Cabana pinning Brian Danielson via pinfall in only five minutes and 42 seconds after he hit the Colt 45. And then Brian Danielson beating out the buzzer, pinning Colt Cabana in 59 minutes and 41 seconds using a small package. Um, Matt, before I go over the match, we often love to uh, reference Brian Danielson, or I guess in this case, Daniel Bryan's book, Yes. And he has some interesting things to say, and particularly about this match. Do you have the... the the section. If not, I can give it to you. But I do. I do have it. Okay. Yes. I so. think. I think this. Sometimes we like to read it after the matches, but I feel like this one it really frames 
the match well. So I think we should read it right off the top. Well, I think the, the, what happens here is very famous for anybody listening to this. So yeah. it's not really too much of a spoiler or anything. Um, yeah. So he's, so this, this is still in the same paragraph where he talked about the other two hour long draws and he goes, the following night, I wrestled Colt Cabana in his hometown of Chicago, the third and most memorable of the 60-minute matches, but not necessarily because it was good. Roughly five minutes into the match, it was actually, what, like nine minutes, right? Um, yeah, uh, that's what I like. there's all these examples we've gotten from through the years where it's like Brian is just like a little bit off on his details, but I mean, I mean I'm that, sure... That's, that's it, so minor, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not minor, but there's there's other things like that, and it's always... I always get like a very guilty slash smug feeling where it's like I'm correcting something about their own life, but I had that same thing when I was reading. I was like, actually, it's nine minutes, Brian. Right, right. Like, he, where, he's, where he thought the match against Aries was actually against Styles. That was a bit... Uh, that was yeah. worse, but um, anyway... Yeah. Um, roughly five minutes into the match, I was pushing Cabana into the ring ropes as he came off them. I'd catch him with a headbutt to the stomach. We did it a few times until he stepped aside in the last he- at the last attempted headbutt, sending me crashing to the floor. I had previously fallen that exact same way well over a hundred times, and never once do I remember even stubbing my toe. This time, however, I missed posting on the apron with my hand as I fell. And I crashed down, shoulder first. I knew something was wrong. So I took my sweet-ass time. I like that he says sweet-ass in there. <laughs> it just added a little bit of flavor. Sweet-ass time, getting back into the ring, hoping I could shake it off. Sweet-ass, shake it off. Anyway, um, it didn't help. I was lucky I was in there with Cabana, because he can be entertaining without throwing you all around. Still, everything I did hurt. At one point, I was going to give him a diving headbutt off the top rope, trying to gut through it, though I knew I was just going to make it worse. I could have stepped down, but I knew I would look stupid, so instead I jumped off the turnbuckle and stomped Cabana right in the chest, way harder than intended. And I definitely did notice that spot. He let out this guttural sound on impact and had a hard time breathing for the next minute. But we were able to get through the match. After I flew back to Philadelphia the next morning, I went to the hospital. The doctor told me I had partially torn two tendons and, more distressingly, separated my right shoulder. The same one I separated in 2000 and the same one I'd have problems with later on in my career. I guess I'll I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, the the, uh, the only other thing I had was the last the next paragraph would be I had bookings over the next two weeks, which for the first time in my career I had to cancel due to injury. So, um, yeah, this is another one of those matches where an injury happens and the story of the match becomes the injury to the point where I don't know about you, Matt, but for me personally, I couldn't really focus on the match as a match anymore. Like. Like I still watch the match, I was still entertained by it, but my focus became just entirely like, how is this guy doing? How is he getting through it? You know, it, um, my analogy would be like, imagine if you're watching a car race and a quarter of the car somehow exploded, but the driver could keep driving and decided he was going to keep driving. You'd still be watching the race fascinated, but at that point, you're not going, oh, I want to see who wins this race. You're just watching that guy and going, how the hell are they going to get through this race? Like, And that's really what I felt like watching this match, which almost made it hard for me when I was thinking at the end, like, what are my like thoughts of this as a as a pro wrestling match that entertains me? It's like, well, I was really kind of just watching this one-man life chapter, you know? Like, uh, I would argue, 
this is Brian Danielson's gutsy, gutsiest performance. And that might be controversial because, you know, he, we just saw him wrestle Okada with a broken arm. And well, they we, did, they did name the show Gut Check, so I don't know how controversial it is, but yes. And Dave Prasak says that multiple times during this match. He'll be like, now Colt Cabana is getting a gut check. You know? And we call he that, really... we, and we call that Trevor, the titular line. <laughs> so, um, I also think this is one of the gutsier performances I've just seen in pro wrestling, period. Like, when Danielson gets hurt 10 minutes in, you can see that he instantly knows something has gone horribly wrong. Because, you know, sometimes you watch wrestling and a guy gets hurt and you're not sure if they're selling or you don't even know they're hurt. And then you hear, like, in the news sites afterwards, oh, it turns out this guy, you know, half his knee is torn to shit, but he just gutted through it with adrenaline, you know. This, like, you know, as soon as it happens, he knows something is wrong. And you, like... You know, he's stalling on the outside. He's in obvious pain. He's keeping, he's continually checking his shoulder. This might even be me reading too much into it, but I think at one point you even see him just like stare with that kind of far away look where you're like not presently, like you're kind of just thinking to yourself, like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, should I, should I keep going? He's in his head, which is very rare for Danielson. Yeah. Like, like there's a moment in this match where he gets back in the ring and he's holding his shoulder and he's just staring across the ring at Colt and he's not engaging Colt. And Colt at that point seemingly is like, he starts going, ref, count to 10, you know, like, cause Danielson's just like not wrestling. Like you can tell Danielson's just still trying to stall and think like, what am I going to do here? And even Colt's trying to, is like, what, what's going on here? And, and, and think about like, think about the booking predicament Danielson is in with this match. Like injuries. Happen in wrestling all the time, but some injuries are way more convenient than others. Right, right. Like, John, if like John, John, ha- John Moxley suddenly saying, "Pin me, you can win the international title," is very different from Danielson, who's part of like six month long like major plans for this epic world title reign that he's having, as multiple like giant matches booked in, in the next like four months. It's a very different situation to be able to change that on the fly, you know. That, that's a great comparison, especially because think about it this way. Like if your injury happens in an unimportant match or like, like a deep on the undercard of a show or a house show match or whatever, you can feel fairly comfortable in instantly stopping the match or at least rushing to the finish. Or even like in a mid-card match on a big show like you just mentioned with John Moxley, Moxley felt perfectly fine with being like, I'm not feeling good. Let's stop it right now. You know, and, you know, if, if the other guys on the show ahead of us have to add, I mean, after us have to add a minute or two to their matches, they might be thankful for that even. You know, it's not going to be a huge deal. Now, compare that to this match. So, like, first off, Brian's in the main event, and this is a DVD where his match is one of, if probably by far, the main drawing card, I would say. Like, if this isn't a stat card on the bottom. You know, it, it's Danielson having a long match as the draw. Second, it's scheduled to go to an hour, which means to an, not just an hour. It's scheduled to go to an hour-long time limit draw, which means that if this match goes early, like he can't end it early. He can't say, "Oh, just pin me, Colt," or "I'm going to pin you real quick," and we'll just go home like ten minutes in, because that's not the result. The result's supposed to be a draw to keep Colt strong, but to keep Danielson the champion. And the time limit is 60 minutes, which means he has to decide if I'm going to stick through this, I have to wrestle another 50 minutes. And I, and if I quit on this match, this isn't like, oh, the main, this is not just the main event. It's a main event that's an hour long, which means the whole last hour of this DVD is non-existent. And Gabe's going to have to think of something else to do because it's going to be a two hour show without this. So. Like just thinking at why Colts like one of the gutsiest performances ever is because of that time length. Like think about as we record this, 
Volador Jr. a week or two ago at the CML L- CMLL 90th anniversary show. He worked a match with like a horrible right shoulder injury, just like Brian Danielson. And that everyone's talking about how incredible performance from him. He gutted it out. And I don't want to like, I don't want to feel, I feel stupid comparing people because it's not, I don't mean to like, lower anyone's achievement or how gutsy all this was. But I'm just pointing out that match was 13 and a half minutes. The Okada match where Danielson breaks his arm and finished the match. That whole match was 2740 and the arm break didn't happen until like partway into the match, not to discount Volador jr. Or 2023 Brian Danielson. Those are also amazing and amazingly gutsy performances. But if you add the lengths of those two entire matches together, that's still only 40 minutes. Brian works with like a serious injury. He's going to need to take time off for that's really debilitating for 50 minutes, five zero, those two matches combined plus another 10. And again, this isn't a match where like he works through it really where you can tell it hurts, but he's doing everything. He is severely limited. Most of this match from that point on, he is holding his arm against the side like it's a broken wing, like he's a bird with a broken wing. And um, it's something openly acknowledged by commentary. He doesn't use his right arm almost at all until the final 10 minutes of the match. Um, He's stalling at points, clearly trying to think about what the hell he's going to do. And um, when he does have to bump on like his right side a few times, you can tell how much it hurts him. There's that moment you described Danielson writing about in the book where he goes up to the top rope to do his top rope headbutt. And he, he decides as he's standing there, like, fuck, I I don't want to land on my shoulder. And then he crushes Cabana, like late stage Randy Savage, when his hip was so bad, he like started doing like shoot top rope elbow drops because he couldn't bear to like land on his hurt hip anymore. Um, it affects everything he does. Like there's a moment not too long after he gets hurt where um Colt is just trying to do like a very light nerve pinch to that shoulder. And you can see, you know, Brian's pretty good about hiding spot calling. He instantly like turns and starts telling Colt, presumably like, please do not touch my shoulder. Like immediately, like don't, don't do that. And Colt does not go near the shoulder for the rest of the match, basically. Um, and but, but, but he final- does, I mean, but Colt, yeah, like you said, that early spot where like Colt does that, like, where he pulls back both of Danielson's arms and like does the body scissors. Like that was just insane to watch. Um, yeah. G- you know, given knowing the injury, like, Oh, like oh, I got, and, and the Danielson didn't pass out in that moment is pretty incredible. Absolutely. And again, I have to feel like it stops right after this. But I have to feel like he, Brian probably told Colt, like, please, like, I know it's obvious that I'm hurt here, but you you can't touch this because it hurts really bad. And I think of like the things he's gutted through Brian Danielson when when he's in that much pain and that limited, how badly this must have been inverted, how bad this must have hurt him. And so. Like in the final 10 minutes, Brian starts throwing using the right arm again, not exclusively, but he starts throwing strikes with it again. I don't know if that's like the adrenaline kicking in or him going, it's only 10 minutes left so I can start just moving, doing a bit more because I don't want to have to pace myself. Or if he just felt like for the finish, I have to start doing some bigger things. So I just going to have to bite the bullet. But I don't know if he some, or sometimes, any rest- sometimes also, and I've, I know I've experienced this. You have some sort of injury and like you want to convince yourself that it's something you could just like shake off and like, oh, it's been a while. So it's like it feels better now, but like it really doesn't. But like your brain is trying to convince you that it's not as bad as you think. And, you know, I don't know. Like, Can you relate to that? 
yeah, I, there's definitely times where I sometimes have the opposite, which is like I'll get hurt and I'll almost be scared to test it because I'm scared of finding out how badly hurt I am. Like you almost thought yeah. like you sprain your ankle or something. You don't want to put weight on it because like how how hurt is this? Like I don't know if I want to know this right now. I just want to sit down. Sometimes it's even but, happened. Sometimes it's even happened to me when I've had like a bad cold where I've been like, oh, like oh, I've been sick for three days. I'm definitely better now. I got to do some stuff, and then I start try doing stuff, and I'm like, oh, I, I'm actually I'm actually not better. <laughs> yeah, especially like on injuries or even colds. Like you might feel good for like an hour, so you're like, oh, it's definitely going away, and you're like, yeah. oh, that was just like a brief reprieve, you know, like yeah, yeah. I thought this was the end, but that was just like a blip of happiness and I am still really screwed up. So yeah, right. I, I completely get that. Um, so yeah, but so like, I feel like that the review of that, I just went through, like, that's the review of Brian Danielson as a human being. And I love this as just a crazy spectacle as a match before the final 20 minutes, I was prepared to say this was the worst 60 minute Danielson match we've seen. And one of his worst title defenses, but after the last 20 minutes, I kind of want to put on the level of the Nigel match the night before, which is like a flawed match, but something I would call good. Not, not something I'd ever want to rewatch again. I don't think it's worth the time <laughs> sink, but I, 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 I enjoyed it enough. I, I, you know, right from the start, you can tell they're going long. They really leisurely pace. They milk it a lot. Then the first fall where Colt wins out of nowhere with in like five minutes with the Colt 45, I thought was like a great little touch because the whole feud started with Colt being upset by Daniels and embarrassed in five minutes with a small package or just a flash pin. So I felt like Colt gained that fall back. I thought was a really nice touch. And then, of course, the Danielson injury changes everything. And from there, I would say this match does feel like the Nigel match the night before where it's a lot of things don't really feel like they're building. It feels like a lot of, we're just trying to think of things to do to fill time, which granted they have a great excuse for that on this match because Danielson's really limited. And, and you know, they kind of do that trick that they, that we've talked about that they can do in long matches that they did with Brian and Joe, where you kind of treat it like two 30 minute, minute matches where the match is starting to ramp up around 30 minutes. Then they have it where, um, they fake an injury to Colt and then Danielson slows the match back down and works on. So it's almost like two 30 minute matches. But really, I thought the first Ferrari match, I was like, this is not bad, but this isn't that entertaining. And then they go outside for 10 minutes. And the match gets pretty crazy at those 10 minutes. There's like chair throwing, spots on the floor, like getting a technical floor. It's like 10 minutes where they brawl all around the building. And it's pretty, it's not like the absolute best or craziest crowd brawl you've ever seen, but it's entertaining enough. It's crazy enough. It kind of breaks up the monotony of the match. It's pretty good. And then the final 10 minutes, they go in, and once they get back in the ring, they decide, that's when they, it's like they decide, okay, let's just start doing our bigger spots. And I thought those last 20 minutes really raised the matchup to, to a match where I was like, eh, this is really kind of not doing it for me. You know, it's not bad, but it's just so long and so monotonous. And I felt that really raised it up to, it's, it's a good 60 minute match. But again, to me, you watch this match one time in your life just to see how gutsy Brian Danielson is. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I don't think it should be surprising to anybody that I thought that, you know, this match was hurt a lot by Danielson's injury. Um, but I think the part that actually surprised me the most was how much I really enjoyed that final sequence. I, um, I, cause I didn't, I, you know, I watched it, like you said, I watched this match once in 2006. I don't rem- didn't remember really at, at all. 
Um, you know, it's kind of hard to watch in some ways. But like that that first like 15 minutes after Danielson gets hurt, yeah, he's not himself. You know, he doesn't know what to do. He's like um, – you know, he's just kind of like sometimes you said, like staring off into space almost like he doesn't even like, I don't know. He just seems like he's in another world. Like he almost seems concussed, although I know he's not. I know he's just like very distracted. But then like about 25 minutes in, he starts waking up a little bit. You know, he starts doing his quote sexy party, hip swivel. He's starting to get his personality back, even though he grimaces through the pain. And I think once he gets his personality back and he starts like working on Colt's leg and stuff, I think the match starts to pick up a little bit. And then, you know, like like you said, um once once they get once they start going outside, even the brawling outside is I think like just okay at first. You know, Danielson does the big dive into the crowd, which is really fucking crazy given his injury. But I think like there's that first sequence that they brawl in the crowd. And then you think that they're about to um go back into the ring and that's when cabana hits his crazy acai moonsault over the rail back into the crowd and this gets this huge pop the crowd like the crowd just totally wakes up at that point and like they they do a second sequence of the crowd brawl i think that's when things really pick up um but you know it was funny in that moment i um i was like oh this must be like the end of a very long recording segment for the announcers because Cabana does this crazy acai moonsault. The crowd goes nuts and Prezak's like, oh, acai moonsault by Cabana. It's like, it's like you should not make announcers uh, call two shows in a row that both have 60-minute matches in the end because you, yeah. they will be really tired. <laughs> and if, they- if I remember Lenny Leonard on Between the Sheets, I think he said that they used to um, – they would like record when they were in Florida for like an FIP weekend, like after the FIP show, and they would record like one show, maybe take a break to eat something, and then record the other, like yeah, to the early hours. So, could you imagine like doing the last show we just covered, which had a sixty-minute match, then having to do this? Yeah, I know it's crazy, and you, but it's like it's you could tell so much that they were exhausted. They tried to get up in the end, but like so, yeah. So they brought in the crowd for a long time. There's actually a point where. Um, um, Danielson throws a chair at Cabana and Cabana ducks and it hits poor, I think Mitch Franklin, who was a student doing security there. Like, I felt so bad for him. But I guess, you know, those are the hazards of being asked to do labor that you didn't sign up for. Um, paying your dues, right? That's, that's what it's called yeah. in wrestling. Um, but yeah, so, so they work in the crowd. There's actually a funny spot where a Cabana reverses a vertical suplex onto chairs and hits his own and then goes for a cover, but the ref says no because it's not Falls Cat anywhere. Uh, that was cute. But yeah, once I got back in the ring, I thought it was like the best final sequence of any of these Danielson 60-minute matches. Better than the Joe one even. Um, you know, the crowd was going nuts. You know, it was a different dynamic because Danielson was needing to tie things up and he had kind of been lackadaisical about it until now. Like, you know, almost like arrogant. And now he's kind of desperate. And Danielson, and Cabana's getting more and more near falls. Um, uh, you know, Danielson's trying to lock in the chicken wing. Cabana keeps making the ropes. Um, cattle mutilation, which Cabana keeps countering. Like, Danielson just gets desperate and desperate and desperate. Um, you know, and until, you know, finally, after a lot of really cool near falls, um, and there's even another one where, um, where Danielson is, um, hitting roaring forearms and does the elbows to the head and cabana tries to stand out of it but instead he collapses and falls into the ropes which i think is a great spot that i'd like to see them bring back during those uh 
what they call them now the quote hammer and anvil elbows um but like we're just like falling into the ropes to get out of it i like that um but the moment we're in the last minute um first of all colt throws the uh the photographer into danielson and i think i couldn't tell because the announcers don't mention it but i think danielson like hit her which is yeah, I replayed. It. I think he hurt that Mary Kate. Like I'm uh, not hurt, but like I think he. Because the first time I watched, it, I thought like I thought that couldn't he couldn't possibly have like thrown like a legit wrestling strike at her. I thought he must have just shoved her or something. But I replayed it, like a few times. I think he like legit fucking like threw like a forearm or something. Yeah, yeah. Her. I mean, I assume that she was like smartened up to it. Like I don't yeah, think. Yeah. But, but like, yeah, I don't think it was like shoot for him or anything. But like, that's a pretty crazy spot that the announcers just ignore. Um. But then, and like, he uses his right arm, his injured arm. So he's like, you know what? If I'm going to use my arm for anything, it's this. Yeah, geez, <laughs> it's a photographer. Boy, should we? Are we going to have to restart this streak again? Uh oh. Um, <laughs> but like, so he's yeah. His I'm not I'm not cool with it even then. But like, wow, it was surprising. So he starts chasing Colt around, and of course, Colt's trying to like stall. But then for some reason, Colt goes back into the ring. Um, hits he Danielson hits a German suplex for a two count. Um, he keeps covering for two, and then he locks in the chicken wing, and then like time's running out. So he asks Sinclair to check the time. He's like, check the time, check the time. And what Sinclair does, he hits a low blow and gets a small package for his first fall. Like this was a really clever spot, but you know I'm going to be annoying about this. It's really stupid that they're allowed to throw chairs over and over at each other uh, in front of the referee, but Danielson has to distract the ref to hit one low blow. I think that's stupid, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. accepting that it was a really clever finish. And then, you know, it, it ends the match differently because like usually these 60 minute matches end where someone's in a hold and like, is someone going to tap? But this time, you know, Danielson gets that fall with a few seconds left. And then they're both just sort of like the, the match ends during the 32nd rest period. Um, and, and it, it ends up being a draw. I, I really was shocked at how exciting that last sequence got. I thought it was like on its own. I thought just like a great match. And obviously you have, you can't ignore the rest of the match. So it wasn't a great match, but wow, those, that, that last sequence, I was very impressed. Like almost to the point where like I forgot about Danielson's injury, like for a few seconds. Cause I was, you know, drawn in and that's hard to do, but the rest of the match, very hard to forget about Danielson's injury. And, uh, yeah, incredibly gutsy, um, compelling in its way, but, but difficult to watch in a lot of ways too. Um, I completely agree. I think that's a great point about the finishing the, the booking at the end too. Cause I feel like one thing I love about the booking of this match is the story of this match and the story of the Nigel Danielson match the night before are kind of the same, but they got to them in completely different ways with completely different vibes. Like these are both the Nigel match and this match. Danielson defends the title one more time in a two out of three falls match against a guy he's been feuding with, with the stipulation that win, lose, or draw, the person never gets a title shot as long as Danielson's champion after this. And each one ends in a one fall apiece tie that goes to 60 minutes. But the one, you know, the Nigel one is, you know, is Nigel almost wins at the last second. That, that finish you described that we've seen a lot in, in these kind of matches where, you know, guys in a move, in this case, like the repeated elbows, Danielson is in the repeated elbows. And if 
the match gone like another couple seconds, the ref would have called it and Nigel would have won. And here they get into it the complete opposite way where, yeah, Danielson's down one nothing. And there's, it makes for this great dynamic that you don't see often in these kind of matches where, yeah, there's, there's that great moment, you know, in the last five minutes, Colt keeps asking the ref, like, how much time is left? How much time is left? And there's a point where two minutes left where kind of organically Colt finds himself outside the ring and he realizes he's outside the ring and he just doesn't have to go back in the ring. And Danielson actually has to go outside and chase him because he, like, it's weird. You would think this sounds cowardly, but it works. Like, it, it, like you and the fans, you know, want him to be like this. They want him to hold out to get the one nothing win and win the title. And you know, yeah, it, it's really interesting the idea of a guy has to kind of do this buzzer beater thing and then distract the ref, get the low blow. So yeah, yeah. And um, one thing I want to ask you, Matt, is you know, in praising how Brian Danielson has had a great year in his top end matches, we both, you know, as two of the charter members of the Brian Danielson Appreciation Society, like um. We we know he's how great a year he's had this year. We know how great he is in general. I mean, a few times I've mentioned how like some of his best matches this year are as good as like anything he's ever done, and how I've said like the the sixty minute match with MJF is like better than you know any sixty minute match he had Ring of Honor. And I had a couple people say I went, when I was bringing this stuff up, I had one or two people reply to me go you must never you must have never seen a Ring of Honor match if you think this stuff is good as Ring of Honor stuff, <laughs> which is pretty funny. But like. Um, um, I would say like, in my opinion, we've now rewatched every single 60 minute Brian Danielson match or longer than 60 minutes in ROH. Like that MGF match is better than all of them by like noticeable amount. Right. Uh, I mean, like, like, I'm not crazy. I'm like the, I mean, you're, I'm the wrong guy to ask. Cause like I'm the high vote on that match. I think in period, like to me, that's like up there with the greatest matches I've ever seen in my entire life. That MJF match, in my opinion, like on the very short list of greatest matches I've ever seen period. Um, so I might not be the right person to ask about that because, yeah, of course, um, it, it is um, not even close. Um, but, you know, I will say, um, you know, for all the Danielson kind of talks down his uh, his planning and stuff in these uh, earlier 60-minute matches, you know, I thought this one actually had a pretty impressive, like, story and pacing that I'm sure got sidetracked a lot um, because of, you know, circumstances, but it came together pretty well in the end. So I think he was already showing signs of having the mind to book out these matches even back then. Uh, I could see this if this had, you know, if Danielson hadn't gotten hurt and this had all come together the way that he wanted to, I could have seen this, this could have been a great match, like a really great match because that, I thought that last like 15 minutes was really great. Um, and I, uh, so, so anyway, yes. Um, Brian Danielson's matches were in 2023. Um, you know, I'd say in terms of consistency, even though it didn't have the volume, in terms of consistency, as good as I'd say any year he's ever had. But I, um, but I, you know, that's not to take away anything from what we've seen in 2006. And, and I will say about all the, now that we've seen all these 60 minute matches, including this run. One that Brian himself has criticized both in the excerpts from his book we've read, but like when I was having that conversation with people online, even Phil Schneider, you know, guest of the show, reminded us that, uh, he reminded me that, you know, you know, he did an interview with Brian Danielson where even all these years later, Brian Danielson shit on those 60 minute matches. And I agree with you, he's hard on himself because I will say, as flawed as some of these matches have been, I would say even his worst one, I would still give like three and a quarter, three and a half stars. I would say everything was at least good. Even I mean, some of them were like, 
they oh, all had they all had ideas in them like you know like like that had to the, that Nigel match from the the night before where like you know he spends so much time working that headlock and stuff like it's like he he he's always creative and clever and does not rest on his laurels yeah, and think about, like, the Nigel match, Nigel has suffered a concussion. This match, Danielson, you know, suffered a very serious shoulder injury. So both these matches even were, were critiquing matches that, you know, had serious injuries in them. And, yeah. and they were still at, a, like, a baseline level of quality. And let's not forget, like, we're talking about the 60-minute matches, but let's not forget, in 2003, he had one of the greatest matches in ROH history that went 40 minutes with Paul London, you know, and he was, like, what, like, 21 at that point? Like... And, you know, you, no one can say that that match wasn't thought out or anything, you know? So yeah. it's, it's you know, let's let's not forget about that stuff either. So I'm just looking at my notes because there's so many things that happened in this match. And I'm just trying to pick out if there's anything else that was interesting to bring up. Um, I thought there was a really cool moment where uh, Colt had Daniels in like a surfboard move, but but just balanced him on his feet. And then he dropped him down to a body scissors, which I thought was really cool. Well, well that was the spot I was talking about, though, with where he was yeah. pulling back on his arms after the injury. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And um, Prezak obviously said gut check a lot. You know, this is a real gut check, definite gut check for Brian Danielson. Um there was a same old shit chant for Brian Daniels, and then a different segment of the crowd followed that up with a chant of "It still works," which is has to another one to add to the pantheon of geekiest chants, <laughs> a supportive chant, but it still works as a chant. Um, it's what some um, excited fifty-year-old says after he has sex for the first time in a very long time. <laughs> So, he's, so, okay, this he's is, so relieved that he has to change that. <laughs> I'm getting to that point. Uh, you can hear the time is marching on all of us, Matt. But um, there is a great moment where um, – so when Danielson does the big dive into the crowd, you can hear a little kid adorably say, Brian Danielson, you rule. And I just wrote my notes. I have to tell everyone that kid was not me. <laughs> Because like, uh, that was just like – that's why I feel like I am on all these podcasts. And then at that point where Brian's in the crowd – What if it was someone, What if it was MJF? <laughs> he definitely would have referenced that in a promo put it on, on a t-shirt um so at this point brian then takes somebody's camera and then takes a picture of colt and then hands it back to the fan and it's like one of those old like yellow disposable cheap cameras and i just thought nothing makes me feel older than seeing that because i have to think there's fr- young fans are go what is that's a weird looking phone it's like it's not a phone you used to have a separate box for a camera like it was so it was such a weird blast from the past even though this match isn't that old to see like one of those cheapy yellow like disposable cameras that he got out and some fan some fan somewhere has a picture that brian Danielson took during that match which is crazy um now see here quick i was trying to see if there's any other notes do 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 there was that great moment where brian sets up the table you know, he drives Colt in the and then he puts Colt on the table, and everyone thinks he's going to put Colt through the table, and then he flips the crowd off, and you never see a guy go through the table. So, like, that that is dedication to the thing where you tease it and you never deliver it. That that is the ultimate fu. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. So, um, let's get to the uh, the story of the arm, uh, the shoulder. Actually, there's a bunch of reporting on this, and I thought it was interesting where. Let's go to the figure four weekly where Brian Alvarez is the one reporter who messed this up because Brian Alvarez wrote after this match, quote, Brian Danielson suffered a shoulder injury during the match and missed the show the next day, but we'll be fine. And then, now let's <laughs> go over all the other reporting. Um, 
The PW Torch wrote, Danielson was forced to cancel his booking for the next day in Buffalo, New York for another promotion due to the injury. And like we mentioned in Brian's book, he said that was the first time he had ever had to cancel an injury, which is crazy when you consider the fact that he had already had like a ton of concussions, an, another serious shoulder injury, all this stuff. Um, then the Observer would write, Brian Danielson was diagnosed with two muscle tears in his shoulder, and he may have a pec tear as well. He was recommended to get surgery, but when he asked, was also told he could avoid surgery and do extensive physical therapy. Danielson asked if he could wrestle and was told it wouldn't be a good idea, but he would not tell him 100% not to wrestle. Basically, Danielson will not work the uh, September the um, September 15th show in East Windsor, Connecticut, where he was scheduled to defend their RH title against Austin Aries. He will work the September 16th show at the Manhattan Center against Kenta. Danielson is saying he will wrestle on a limited basis while doing physical therapy, even though his doctor told him he would worsen his tears by wrestling before he's healed, which would guarantee him needing surgery. Then the next week, Dave wrote a follow-up. There's nothing really new regarding Brian Danielson that wasn't reported last week. He's working that show. It is not certain if he has a partial pec tear, but he does have two shoulder tears. Best case scenario is he'll continue working and work some easy quote-unquote matches, tag matches and the like, and some hard matches, as opposed to almost all hard matches while he rehabs the tears. Worst case scenario is that his body won't hold up in the Kenta match, and he gets surgery and is out a few months. And then the torch rope. Brian Danielson's doctor recommended Danielson get surgery, which would have required Danielson to miss at least three months of in-ring action. The other option presented to Danielson was physical therapy, which would heal the injuries and be an alternative to surgery. His scheduled match with Austin Aries for September 15th in East Windsor has been canceled as well. Danielson was told by his doctor that his wrestling could worsen the tears in his shoulder and force him to have immediate surgery. Danielson also learned from his doctor that his shoulder injury is not career-threatening, so he is not risking his career by working through this injury. So... Yeah, so for all those who know your history, obviously Danielson basically does what Whitmer just finished doing on this show, which is he knows he's going to have to take time off sooner or later, but he's going to try and gut through the big stuff they have planned for the next few months, and he will. But think how crazy you – know, I, I also don't think he ever had that surgery. I think even after the, he, he w- took his time off in 07, I think he just like rested up and did therapy. I'm not positive about that, but that's my memory anyway. Yeah, and, and think how crazy it is too where – um. We all know how, like, Gabe Sapolsky, law wrestler, is legendary for his tantrums and how stressed out he would get for booking changes. Think about how all the plans he has for Danielson. Imagine he gets hurt right before the Kenta match. You still got to have the big final ba- battle match with Homicide. You got the Joe feud isn't over yet. And think about that one thing I just read that Torch thing, which is – or in one of those news stories, which is – that the injury could worsen and require immediate surgery at any time. So if you're like Gabe and Danielson, you're thinking, well, maybe you can get through this, but the, and, and on any given match in during this next few months, he could have like just torn it even worse to the point where it's like, well, you can't wrestle even if you want to. Like how stressful that must have been where all of this, and, and yet to their credit or to their insanity, they did not like try and move up anything, you know? They 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 yeah. kind of just keep to the schedule, and it's funny because I don't know, just like my mindset at the time, for whatever reason, I never doubted that Danielson would work the final battle and drop it to homicide. Like even like at that was like once I knew he was going to like wrestle at least through the Kenta match, I was like, all right, yeah, he's just he's just sticking around till final battle. <laughs> and the Austin Aries Danielson match, it does eventually happen, but weird jinx because Aries was supposed to wrestle him on the, that on that match on night two of the UK tour. Aries hurts his ribs bad. It gets rescheduled for the the show after this one. Danielson wrecks his shoulder. So it has to get rescheduled again. So that's an oddly cursed match there. But um, after the match, 
Bobby Cruz announces Danielson as Mr. Small Package, Brian Danielson. So that's really taken hold. Crowd chants bullshit. Brian gloats to the camera that Colt doesn't get another title shot. And I, I, I like that, too. We're talking about the contrast between this match and the Nigel match, where the Nigel match is Danielson being ultra-deferential and respectful and serious and selling that he was knocked out for minutes after the match and then giving him a lot of respect. And here, again, it's night and day difference. It's really smarmy, dickish Danielson who's just gloating like, you know, I don't ever have to wrestle this guy again now. You know, I, I can get out of here. So, I, I again, I like how different these two very similar matches they managed to make them. Um, Holt is left alone in the ring. He gets chants from the crowd. We follow Colt back to the entrance with him telling the fans he's sorry for losing, which I felt like, I felt kind of bad. I was like, cause instead of being angry that Brian screwed, screwed him, he's just like, I'm sorry guys. You know, like I let you down. I'm like, Oh, Colt. Um, so we end with a still he shot. Also, of he, Daniel- he also did not lose for the record. Yeah, it's a draw. I mean, he did not win the title as he promised. Yes, yes. And, but he, and he was seconds away from winning the title. But yeah, yeah, technically, yeah, it's his best result against Danielson ever so far. He, he did not lose to him. But, um, we end with a still shot of Danielson's shoulder injuring tumble to the floor, which I will probably make the image for the show because it's the big story of the show. And it's Danielson just going like straight vertical down once he gets past the road. It's also very easy. Um, to t- it's also easy to take a screen grab of a still. So that makes it easy too. <laughs> that you know me well. Uh, so uh, we get a voiceover that isn't Gabe's for once that tells us that Brian Danielson suffered a painful and debilitating shoulder injury approximately nine minutes into the match brian was told he has two torn tendons in his shoulder and a possible torn muscle in his chest Danielson was told by doctors that he needs immediate surgery and ROH just told him they would not strip him of the title as he recovers but instead brian has informed ROH that he will wrestle through the injury and take on kenta as scheduled in manhattan so you get your big tease for the next show and matt that was gut check what do you think about this show there are a lot of matches on this show where it was like it kind of started out kind of awkwardly or slow and then the final sequence just like took the match to another level. I can think of the three matches on this show that had that. And the main event like had that times a thousand. So that's like what I'll remember about this show in terms of match quality. It's like these final few minutes like really elevating these matches. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I didn't have the strong feeling about this show in general, but I ended up enjoying it. I thought that the low light was the cornet promo and the Whitmer and Jacobs match I wasn't really crazy about, but everything else I had a good time watching. I uh, definitely feel like the main event was extremely uncomfortable a lot of the time, but also better than I remembered because of the ending. Um, I like the tag matches on the show. And um, yeah, this is a certainly inessential show, very inessential, unless you're just fascinated by Danielson's incredibly gutsy performance. But um, it was pretty good and better than my memory. So that's what I would say about it. Um, of course, um, I need to award the Matt F trophy. Oh, I almost forgot. I should put that in the notes every now. I, I was excited too. And then I forgot to put my notes to prompt you. Thank God you remembered <laughs> the second ever Matt F. I am legit excited for this. Well, I should be keep track of what everything, what, what wins the Matt F trophy. Honestly, I should have you, 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 you don't have to, but I, I should, <laughs> I should. Um, so this is, this is the second show in a row where I want to give it to something silly. Like I wanted to give it to Matt Seidel's wacky promo last month, last show, but I didn't. 
Um, this time I want to give it to Jimmy Jacobs singing Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong for helping me learn a lot about the Growing Pains theme. But I, I can't not give it to Brian Danielson's incredibly gutsy performance. I mean, how could he not get a trophy for doing that? <clears throat> Brian Danielson for wrestling for 50 minutes with a separated shoulder and torn shoulder and possibly a torn peck. You are the second ever winner of the Mad F yeah. Trophy. Well deserved. I mean, he can lift it with his good arm. Well, yes, nowadays yes. he would lift it with both arms. It would be hilarious if we made actual trophies and then we just sent it to them and we just told them like, "This is for." Remember when you injured your shoulder like all those years ago? We decided you deserve something for yes. it. Like just random ass. For the record, I do have an actual trophy. I just only have one of them. Um, yes, but uh, yeah, yeah. If 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 I was going to send actual trophies, I feel like I would give it to Jimmy Jacobs because I feel like he would get it and be like, "What? I did what now?" Like, like here to to Jimmy Jacobs for singing "Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong" during a promo on the Gut Check DVD. I feel like that would blow Jimmy Jacobs' mind. And Jimmy and Brian. And our, our buddies, so they could talk about. If they were the first two ever winners of the Mad F Trophy, they could talk about it. They, they would, right. they would be like, "I'm, I'm afraid. Is this a bomb? Like, why is people, why are people sending us these cheap trophies?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> all sorts of things they could talk about. Exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, my my thoughts on the show were similar to yours. I might be a little bit lower. Uh, as this, you know, stop me if you heard this before. Of Honor in this period, who has such a high baseline level of quality that even their worst shows aren't enjoyable to watch. This one's no different, but I would say this is probably one of the bigger, as, as, as Matt said, one of the least essential shows we've seen this year. Um, kind of like similar to the last show, which is, you know, a six, I feel like the tag title matches on both nights were the best matches on the shows. The uh, 60 minute matches were flawed, but interesting in their own way. And that the undercard were kind of a mixed bag that didn't have a lot of like super like didn't really have really huge highs but weren't terrible this show obviously also has the complete misfire of a cornet promo that goes on forever but again if this is the floor it's a pretty good floor and i will i will again say if you are a younger listener i know we have a few if you don't watch every show with us uh, if you're saying i know some people watch every show with us it might be worth watching this match, even though we did not give it like an, uh, you got to see it match review for the Danielson main event, just because it is fascinating and it is a kind of a, it feels like historical. I've never seen a wrestler work through injury to that extent before. You know, it's an important part of Danielson's life career. And I think it's worth one watch. And it's, it's another funny example of symmetry that the year that we review this is the same year that Danielson famously worked through a match with a completely broken arm. <laughs> Yeah, in a main event on a major show. Yeah, it, it's it's really insane. Like how many times this? It feels like they're happening more often now. They're sticking yeah. up more and more. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so that that brings us to plugs as always through the years at gmail.com t h r o h for through we love if you ever have an email, you have any thoughts or whatever, you, you know, Twitter at Trevor Dame at Mayor M G F. Uh, you know, you could review us, recommend us, whatever you like. And then um, next time on the show, we'll be entering a big time double shot. We can one of the bigger t- shots on our 2006 calendar. Glory by Honor 5, Night 1. Now, Night 2 is the big man of JAMA, but this one has Roderick Strong and Samoa Joe, which, you know, is something that we will never see in wrestling 
ever again after 2006. And it also has, as uh, our friends at the Honorable Mention podcast like to mention, name, Kenta in a Tenta, because that's that's right. Kenta returns. He and Marafuji take on the Briscoes in a dream tag match. But it's another one of those Ring of Honor shows where they have to then scramble and run a show in a tent. So it all happens in a tent. Kenta in a Tenta next time on Through the Years should be fun. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.